as you know, we're moving into uh, a phase two of our training. Phase one was really looking at uh, the whole uh, doctrine and calling of shepherd leaders and and ecclesiology. So we really were, were doing a lot of ecclesiology along with the shepherd leader sort of training. And now what we've done, as you remember, I'm just kind of reminding you what you already know. Um, we've moved into sort of shepherd leader calling applied. So what we're trying to do now is ask questions. So we look at our ecclesiology, our five mark total Christ ecclesiology, and we're taking now each mark each week and we're asking the question, um, what are the relevant issues for servant, for shepherd leaders to be thinking about in these issues? What are the kinds of things that, that you're going to be confronting uh, if you're a shepherd leader? And so that's the, the purpose of these next uh, five. And then we're, we're through. Um, so we're, we're coming down the stretch here. And uh, I think we have a last one that's going to be a Q&A that's going to talk a little bit about uh, if you plan to take the exam and, and you know, and, and thinking what's the next steps kind of stuff. So we'll be talking about that. So with that, um, we're here to talk about gospel-centered spirituality. I love this. Uh, I put this quote because I think it's, you're going to see it tomorrow as well in our congregational meeting. But, um, but you know, there's such a, a confidence in the gospel that you see throughout Scripture. And I have a couple of scriptures to, to do that. And it's that confidence that I hope we will, uh, that will inspire us as shepherd leaders to use the gospel. Now, so that's really what today is about is... Are we really going to use this? It's so easy to talk about gospel-centeredness. But will you actually use it You know, when you do counseling? Will you use it to, to, to plan for your church and its philosophy of ministry? And, and so that's sort of what we're doing. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Um, why don't we open up in prayer? Could I just ask a few of you to pray for us? Um, and then I'll, I'll say amen. All right? Father, we do thank you for the gospel. We thank you that its power is beyond us and yet um, reaches us and transforms us, help us to sit under it and be reflective of it now. Father, we continue to pray. I thank you for these men and women who have sacrificed their Saturday mornings to, to be here. I know that's a great commitment, and uh, I thank you, Lord, for your spirit being here. I know your commitment and to be with us and to give us knowledge that would help serve your church, Lord. That, that's a prayer that's a no-brainer, Lord. We're praying for you to enable us to serve you and your blessed flock, uh, that we would truly have the heart of a shepherd and that, uh, that your spirit would help us to do that. And we know that's a prayer that's in your will. And so we can be assured that you will answer that prayer according to your will. And so, Father, we ask now that you would, um, again, uh, instruct us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 
All right, so uh, I'm going to go ahead and now just a little bit. You have two things I want you to have in front of you. One is this PowerPoint that we're watching, which has been put on the website. So everybody knows where your, you know, uh, Shepherd Leader Training website is on CPC uh, web, and you can go there. It's one of the current classes, and if you go down, scroll down, you'll see the all the handouts and readings that we have digitalized are on that uh, syllabus that you have on that website. So it's really easy to get access to it. Um, if you want to pull up that that PP, if you can't see it well here, you could follow it right now with that. Um, it's on there for you. So. But this is what I want you to have, uh, this, this handout in front of you right now. The other handouts, uh, the other guys will be doing with you. Um, and this really is, uh, I, this is going to be Preston Light. I hope you enjoy that. Uh, I, but it's, it's a little bit of a, you know, it's, they're going to be able to get into some of the other material. Um, but I wanted to kind of step back a little bit and introduce the gospel and, and just sort of point out some things that we all know. So I don't know that you're going to learn anything in this next hour if you mean, oh, wow, I, I didn't know that about the gospel. Um, what I am hoping is that it'll, it'll make us think about that, those things that we're going to talk about related to your shepherd role. Okay? So that's sort of where we are. I need my glasses. Here they are. And one more po- comment um, is the... Uh, issue of the Keller reading. Did anybody try to read Keller's Center Church? Thank you. You had to you had to uh, buy your book and I apologize for that, but we felt conscious that that would have been a copyright violation to just throw whole half a book in the, into the uh, thing. We couldn't do these. Most of everything we've given you has been public domain. Uh, maybe a chapter maybe somewhere wasn't. I'm not sure, but um, but for that one, we just felt like so. So I did put another handout, a Tim Keller handout, which is vintage Keller on the gospel. This one, and maybe you saw that was listed there, and maybe you read that um, instead. Um, I'm hoping you read Center Church. I think you should. It's a good book to have. It's a good book for all of us to have. He does a, a really, really. I mean, he's vintage Keller. He's a very high gospel kind of thinker, and he really has. Uh, I think, earn the right to think about it uh, in terms of the missional church. And he does a very good job with that. So um, you could look at that. There are a few nuances, of course, that we will we would pluck out here and there, but um, especially when he starts getting into the ecclesiology side of it. But, um, but anyway, I, I hope you can read it, but I'll let these guys, it's more of their curriculums. Uh, that's curriculum that they were going to be utilizing, so I'm not sure, Kevin, how you're, you're going to handle that. But um, So let's, let's go ahead and just read another passage for us. Um, Therefore... Do not be ashamed. Here's that word again. It just keeps coming up. Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. But share in suffering for the gospel. By the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to life through the gospel. Um, what are some of the, uh, what do you see? What, just, just talk to me a little bit. Let's have a little devotional this morning. What, what are some of the uh, themes that, that stick out here at you? Because it's, pretty, it's a pretty packed little, little verse or verses. And he saved us. Okay, so it's, 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 let's stop. I mean, the gospel is not just a message. It, it is a power to save. It, it's, it's credited with the power to save us. Now, do we believe that when we're in a counseling session? 
when we're in a discipleship moment. Do, how well have we really, um, you know, there, there's, there's, there's the lay understanding of the body, but then there's the, the doctor, there's the, the practitioner's understanding of the human body. And, and what we're expecting of our shepherd leaders is they're, they're moving into the field of doctor. Maybe you're the PT, maybe you're the, uh, the PA or something. But, but we're, we're, we're encouraged. We want you to be, you know, medical technicians, if you will. Uh, um, yeah, we all know the gospel. We all know a body. I know that I have. Preston Graham knows that I have a heart and a liver and stuff like that. But, you know, Cliff Bode knows the body. Now, he's going to know how these things integrate and work together. And I'm going to tell you, as a guy that's been doing this now, as a doctor of souls for 30 years, um, it's a very different kind of knowledge of the gospel. And I'm hoping that we start to move you in that direction. It's a very different kind of understanding of the gospel to know it as I experience it and to know it as you use it in, in relationship to ministry. And we're going to, again, try to explore some of those ideas. So thank you. But it's, it's the power to save. And that means to save a marriage. That means to save a relationship between a mother and a, fa- and a child or a father and a child. Really. It really is. You know, it, 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 it's categories. It's, it's mechanism is really significant in, in relationship to the power to save. So that's an excellent point. What else? Do you notice here? It's God called who works, whose purpose it is, whose grace it is. It's his, his plan, his working. Okay, it's his it's his strategy. It's sort of it's attributed to how God intends to save the world. So there's a little bit of a that's a, that's, a, that's a nice little. Uh, Relation to what we just said, but it, it is his method. I mean, it really is his method. It's the one he devised, and we'll see. It's very deep. He devised it from, you know, of course, Genesis to Revelations. It's a, it's a trajectory that is embedded in what the word we call covenant. So now it got big. Did you notice throughout the ages here? It's uh, the reference here. Uh, yeah, before the ages began. I mean, this is this is a plan devised before we even began history. And therefore, you're expecting to see it as a prominent theme throughout redemptive history. And you're going to ask, but where do I see that, Pastor? Well, you see it everywhere. Everywhere. But particularly, you're going to understand it as it manifests itself both as light in the covenant and as heat in the temple. You know, we're going to use those two phrases. You know, light and heat. Um, There's a sense in which the covenantal aspect of the gospel regulates it. It regulates the gospel. Um, it, it's, it makes sure we it's preserved. It makes sure it's, the extent and limits of it is undiscerned. And it's going to really have a lot to do with regulating. It deals with, and it goes, it's going to move you into the what are the great dangers of the gospel according to the covenant. Well, we're going to talk about idolatry. Therefore, idolatry becomes a conversation in every counseling moment, whether implicitly or explicitly. But idolatry is there. It's always there. Every marriage trouble, every relationship with a child, idolatry is there. You know, and so you start looking in those constructs. Um, good. So there's a notice, and we're going to look at that. And the trajectory language here that there's a sense in which, from the beginning of time, there's never been a time 
when anyone has been saved apart from this covenantal trajectory that is in, that in, you know in, articulates and regulates what we call the gospel. Okay, what else? I mean, it's really a packed verse. Yeah. Pushback. Yes. Both internally, like being ashamed or suffering, various various pushback the world can give us. Isn't that something? It's this is the this is the savior of the world, and we are so. In the words of John Calvin, because I'm teaching, as you know, three seminars right now, and they're just all kind of interfacing with me, but. But, you know, how can we be so stupid and dumb, is the words Calvin used. Very plain. How can we be so stupid and dumb? But we are. There's pushback. I love that language, pushback. And it's our own idolatry that pushes it back. So there you go. That's right. But So you're going to, you know, I use the illustration I know in other contexts, but, you know, when you try to save a dog caught on a fence, it's gonna, you're going to get bit. You know, it's amazing how often... You start, you do it as gently as you know how, you do it as subtly as you know how, you can try so hard, but somewhere you're going to deal with, you know, why are you suffering this anxiety? And what is behind that anxiety that is ruling your emotions? And is it really God? Is it really the gospel? Or is it this, this Egyptian idolatry that requires that you work harder for less? And to the point that it absolutely exasperates you to death. That's what idols always do. If you idolize your children, you'll work. You work the children idol, and I'm not talking about the the child itself is not idol. You know that when I say children, it's the way in which a person is interacting with their child. It's their own internal children idolatry that then becomes to, to comes to play in the life of a child. And the anxiety or whatever it is, and finally say, you know, come let's step back here. Why is this, you know, what's what's going on in this relationship in you and you, you know? And all of a sudden you explore the idolatry of my own identity through my children and, and, and you know, I'm having to prove myself to my peers and to my parents or to my world that I'm a good parent, and now there's there's all this insecurity of justifying myself through my parenting. And all of a sudden you realize what's really going on here has nothing to do with this child. <clears throat> It's all about the gospel. And I don't care how old you are and how much mature you are in the Christian faith and how many doctrines you know, there's going to be some pushback when you start hitting on those idols. You're going to get some pushback. And you will potentially, depending on the trust, depending on a lot of things, the personality, yeah, there are times when you'll just you'll, you'll get attacked. And it, it's, just, it's just a common sort of thing. It's going to happen. Paul knew it. Jesus knew it. They killed him for it. They killed him for the gospel. Because the gospel just absolutely attacked the idolatry of self-justification and identity formation. So, yeah, that's great. You, you saw that. There's going to be pushback. Anything else? I, I saw that it's, it's kind of strange when you look at the different prepositions that mm. you used. Mm. That if you were to take out of context... The, the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That sounds like you could almost do prosperity gospel from that. Mm. Jesus came, he abolished death, and now everything is going to be okay mm-hmm. through the gospel. Yeah. But when you see the other preposition, for the gospel, mm. we have to suffer mm. for the gospel at the same time. But the, the thing that's interesting that jumped out to 
to me first is that we share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And that's a strange sort of concept. Yeah. We suffer by the power of God. And so uh, the thing that I found, like as I was thinking about it, um, most powerful is that we're not left alone in our suffering. Yeah. We suffer by the power of There's God. There's a sharing. There's a presence. Mm-hmm that God has with us as we're going through the suffering. Mm-hmm. But the suffering is going to happen, Good. even though he's abolished. Yeah, you said a mouthful and all that. I mean, yeah, there's a sense of, I mean, let's, let's break it down, what you said, what I've heard you say. is Number one, there clearly is a salvation, but it's not yet a fully experienced salvation. It's certainly envisioning the heavenly reality of this. So that's that's one. And I do think... I want to slow down there because it's not been very vogue recently. I mean, you read the ancients and, I mean, eternal, I mean, people were aware of death. They were aware of the reality of death in a way that was maybe more prominently in our face, you know, pre-modernity and some of the ways that we do it and hide it. And, and um, I mean, I do think it should be the aim of every shepherd to, to um, how do I say this, uh, to... To, to be willing to suffer and delay the gratification, and know that there's a delayed gratification of when you'll see the fruit. I mean, there is a delayed gratification for you as a shepherd. And, and so you're pointing, that's, I'm kind of spinning a little bit what you said there. Right now, this gospel, especially for those who, who are shepherding it, because remember, he's, he, this clearly is kind of a, for those of you, I want you not to be ashamed of the gospel now. He's not talking about how you experience it. He's talking about those who are using it. And you're going to suffer for it. But it's a delayed gratification. Um, the, the salvation you want to see in their lives as well. I mean, I'm, I'm you know, it's, it's, it's the great wager, as Pascal said. You know, it, there's a sense in which you are blindly, from an experiential point of view, not from a confessional point of view, but you're blindly launching yourself into a ministry where, all for all practicalities, you really aren't going to see the fruit. You're not going to see the... The amazing transformation that this this message that this ministry you've had will have until you get to heaven, and you go, oh my gosh, there it is, this this amazing, you know, glorified person, you know, uh, that was part of the ministry that I was involved with, you know, not not giving credit to me or you, shepherds, but as the, the instrument of God, as the under shepherds of God. That, wow, it, it it worked. It worked. It was worth it. And I think that's there too. If we saw the results right away, we'd take credit for it. We wouldn't give God the credit. Yeah, maybe so, yeah. And we found this, especially through this time of our lives, that we've had 22 people live with us over the years. And several have told us now how much it meant mm-hmm. to be there. Yeah. And, and had they told us then, mm-hmm. we'd say, oh. Boy, you did. Yeah. You know, but now we can give God. Well, it's true. We we still have sin in our lives, so there we will be without the sin of self vain glory, right. and we would. I mean, there's certain smells of truth to that. You're right. That's good. Well, okay. So we're we're, we're getting we're getting into the into the world of it. Um, let's let's start picking up on it. Of course. Now, if you want to understand the gospel, uh, one of the things that we want to uh, you know articulate here is that there is this sort of orientation. This, I want you to see the orientation of the gospel in the scripture. And just to demonstrate that, of course, you see that, this, this trajectory, this hermeneutic um, in, in Emmaus Road. Um, you're familiar with this. You can read as I'm talking. But 
let's, let's, what I want to do is take what happened on the Emmaus Road and the way in which it, it all... And of course, the Gospel is fundamentally about Christ and His ministry, is His work. You know, we are simply the instruments. We're not the ministry itself. We are the, the instruments. Just God used me, you know, but it's not the same as being the instrument. He's the instrument, His power, His hands, His wisdom, His everything. Um, and so, uh, and we're going to end with a great quote about that uh, from Calvin. So, so with that in mind, I, I want us to just sort of, you know, step back. And now I want you to look at your handout a little bit. And I want, I want to analyze this trajectory. And to do that, I have, you know, I'm going to point, I'm not going to, we're not going to cover all of it. But I want to just sort of read this first paragraph um, here, a covenantal orientation. Um, actually, would someone else read it for me? Salvation by divine law views salvation most essentially as a legal or forensic transaction satisfied on our behalf by Christ, such as to preserve the great centeredness of our sacred romance between God and humanity. This in turn will emphasize the declarative praxis of spirituality. The covenant orientation is shown to regulate our romance, such as to preserve the gracious nature of our union with Christ by means of the objective basis of redemption is executed by a covenant form on the basis of our safety and acceptance with God. In other words, without the objectifying grace of covenant, it will be shown how redemption itself cannot be gracious insofar as we are left to our subjective experience and performance as a basis for human flourishing and hope. So, what did you hear there? There's a word that just kept coming out. And it's the word objective. At the very heart of the gospel is this idea that we can't save ourselves, that there must be some kind of transaction that takes place that enable, that restores our relationship to God. And every one of these things I just said, there's a caveat. What kind of relationship? Well, I mean that kind of legal family relationship. I'm thinking the doctrine of justification adoption. Now the gospel is going to include, as you see in a minute, also the, 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 the subjective that's part of the good news, if you will. But let's. But what we're really starting to hammer in on here is this idea that there is a grace kind of, of activity that relates to our relationship with God. Right? Let's just make it very simple. And and for that to actually happen, there has to be some aspect of our of our salvation that really is passive, where we are truly not the object. But God is the object. And that's what is so perfectly communicated through the trajectory of redemptive history that we call covenant. Where there is this transaction. And, and so maybe you're not familiar with it, but, but let me just kind of walk you through a few things here. Starting then with the Genesis and ending in Christ's ascension, we will discern two trajectories that are distinct and never separate. I'm talking, of course, temple and covenant. You've all been schooled on that. <laughs> They're, of course, mutually interdependent. That's important. It's not as though the covenant can exist apart from the, tri- the temple, and the temple can't or presence, and you can't have presence without the covenant. The two are always interactive, and and there's a and and so you don't want to see this as sort of. It's like again, we've related to Christology. You just can't envision Christ as anything but both human and and divine. There is no Christology that has. That they could speak of Christ without both of those all the time, interdependent, however you want to relate them together, but they're there. And it's the same thing in redemptive history. 
There is a word that becomes flesh. The flesh, of course, being the temple, the word, which is, of course, the covenant. And the two are always interdependent and ongoing. But what's important here is is then to to focus on this aspect of it, this objective, because I think that's where a lot of this starts to get lost. Um, And so in this objective idea, and I won't quote here from Meredith Klein, it's a wonderful, you know, he talks about it as paradigm, covenant, and power, which is temple. And by power he means that which takes the covenant and applies it you know, if you've read uh, John Murray, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, if you're familiar with that, he's following the same trajectory. You know, salvation accomplished, objective, the objective dynamic of our salvation, and applied, subjective. All right? And the, and the instrumental, the means of grace that, that, is, that is utilized to apply it to our lives is, of course, the temple realities. Word, sacrament, community, you know, within the context of all that stuff. And so you have this sort of, a, what is the God doing wholly outside of us that you would call then a kind of objectifying grace? It objectifies the gospel. Object, objectifying grace. And then what is he doing in and with and through us about the gospel? That's the subjectifying grace of the temple. And um, now I'm going to not go through this because you've had it before, so you can flip over a couple of passages. And later you can go back and read this. I'm not going to read all of this, but there, there's two dynamics that I want to, uh, that, that all these, these paragraphs that you see here on page three, um, they are basically walking you through two ideas. And you see them here. There is this legal, forensic, Nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Something that's going to want to constantly force us not to examine ourselves, but to examine something that, that transacts outside of ourselves. Now, where do you see that grace in redemptive history? Well, again, you can read it, you can be looking at it as I talk if you want. What you're going to see is that all there is, whenever there's a covenant making, the focus is going to be on who is actually bearing the responsibility of the covenant. Who takes responsibility for it? So let's start with Adam and Eve, the first church. Now you've got to think of Adam and Eve as, as, as a paradigm in many levels. Eve, you could describe as the first church. Adam is the first covenant head. We, we get permission to do that right out of Scripture. You know, she becomes Eve. You might know what the word Eve means. The mother of life. You know, when she put her faith in the second covenant head that was promised, Adam also put faith in the second covenant head as was promised. God then clothed them, as you remember, with his righteousness vis-a-vis the sacrificial image of the the clothes of the slain uh, sacrifice. And and that's when Adam named Eve, Eve... (laughs) And and um, and said before you are the mother of life. From your womb will come life. You know. And so, throughout the redemptive history and church history, the mother of life is as the is language that, that is referencing the church. For that reason, she becomes, if you will, the first church. By the way, Mariology is the same thing. Um, there are two very different redemptive histori- I mean, uh, church uh, history conceptions of Mary. Is she the Mary of God, or is she? the exemplary church. 
And we, as Protestants, would describe her as the exemplary church model. So, therefore, when we see her prayer, we see the prayer of a sinner, don't we? Someone who says, I'm not worthy. And she's embracing her womb as the conduit through the coming of the Savior based upon the Janet revelation that was given to her. And so she becomes the mother of God. I mean, the mother uh, uh, of life. The, the, the church becomes the womb, in the words of Cyprian, wherein salvation is born. But, of course, Adam now, on the other hand, is the covenant first covenant head, who initially failed. But where do you see that covenant headship? Well, you see it in, in the covenant, the oath that was made. And, and if you, I mean, I know we all like to take this, this image of their being married. And pretty quickly, we put it right into contemporary marriages. But there's a little bit of a caveat here. Eve doesn't take an oath. You don't see her taking an oath there. She doesn't say, you know, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. And we all know from Jeremiah and elsewhere that that's, that's treaty oath-taking language. She doesn't do it. Adam does it. And then he fails his oath. He, 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 uh, he vowed that he would, at the, to the extent of self-sacrifice, I mean, I've also, I mean, oh man, you know, sometimes I've, I've, I've really tried to, to reconcile this with our common practice where both the father and the, I mean, the husband and the wife take an oath, you know, and it's pretty much based on this thing, till death do us part kind of thing. I've, I don't know, sometimes I wonder, should, should we be just really just fessing up here and say, man, you're going to take an oath. Woman, you're going to just receive it, you know. Uh, as a, what do you think of that, Kevin and Craig? I don't know. Are we really getting radical here? I don't know. But anyway, I, let's not go there right now. So, uh, uh, but yeah, I'm just thinking through. But if you really were to focus on redemptive history, the whole point of that at least episode was to accentuate the fact that the church takes no responsibility ultimately here for the the, the execution of this covenant. That God has assumed execution through his covenant head. Anticipating the fall, if you will. And of course, wherever in redemptive history you go, you see some context then where the people will take the oath. I'm thinking now at the mountain. And, and later in Hebrews, the author of Hebrews is going to reference this and say, wow, what a horrible day that was. Israel took, a, you know, when, when Israel assumed responsibility, and it wasn't wrong that they took the oath, it was part of the redemptive plan, and that gets really into it, but, but when Israel stood under that mountain and said, we will obey, I mean, it, it was a dark day. You, you could almost feel it coming. Oh my God, is this going to tragedy? Because here's Israel, you know, assuming responsibility for this incredible covenant. And of course, we're supposed to. That, we were called to do that as the church. Remember, we were supposed to do it. So it's not that they were sinning, but you just knew, given the redemptive history so far, that they're going to fail. They had never once has the people of God, has the church been capable of saving itself by covenant obedience. And so this whole promised land, this whole beautiful, you know, milk, honey, and everything else. You, if you're reading it as a, as a redemptive historical uh, biblical exegete, if you've been studying what's been going on since Adam, through the Genesis, through you know the Noah, through the this, through the that, you're thinking, oh my gosh, this doesn't feel much like that covenant God made with Abraham. Back then in that covenant, it was God who took the oath and walked through and, and the slain animals. It was, the, it was God who took that oath. Oh boy, I mean, this is, if you're really becoming a good biblical scholar, 
you really could have anticipated this if you're sitting there in Exodus chapter or whatever it is, 20 or something like that. And so you go, oh my God, this is, this is not looking good. <laughs> and of course, what happens? It's, it's part of the typology that God sets you up with that Paul later in chapter 7 is going to tell you in Romans, it was all meant to tutor you. It was meant to exasperate you. It was meant to reveal to you just how sinful we are. And how much then we would want to cry out with the, with the corporate eye, ego of Paul. I know I'm, I'm starting to get deep here, but you know, you know, the, you know, remember the egos. The ego is the Greek for I. And Paul assumes the corporate identity, like Isaiah did previously and others. He assumes a corporate identity in chapter 7. Now everybody, evangelicals, you're probably blowing your mind right now. I'm going to turn to you one passage, but... This is one of these subjectivization of hermeneutic kind of movements and even modern evangelicals because they've missed the fact that Paul lived before the, the creation. Paul lived before the law. I mean, if you, look, if you follow those eyes, he's walking through redemptive history. Before the law, I. Before the law, I. You know, he's doing this stuff. And what he's doing is he's saying, man, this whole covenantal history, there's a part of that history which was, which was ordained of God through the oath-taking of the church, assuming responsibility for the obedience of the covenant, that led to disaster. They never, ever really enjoyed the promised land. I mean, even when they got there, it was one skirmish war after another, after another, after another. And then they, of course, had two, not one, but two major uh, uh, banishments, Babylon and Assyria. I mean, this was a mess. So that by the time you get to Romans 7, which we're going to read in a minute, what do you have? You have an exasperated Israel. You have an Israel that's going, oh my God, who will set me free from this body of death? Answer, chapter 7, verse I think 25. You might know? Jesus. Amen. How does it say? It's just so lovely in its spontaneity almost. You know, who will set me free from this body of death? Praise be to God. Jesus Christ, you know, who, and it goes through this whole thing. And so, so what you, what I'm trying to point out to you at the heart of the gospel is there are these two trajectories. One trajectory is the foolishness of humanity to assume for himself. I mean, the, the whole purpose of the law, vis-a-vis its temporal promises in the Old Testament, was to bring us to the point where we are absolutely, you know, at our wits' end in redemptive history. We are at a point of exasperation. Who shall set me free from this body of death? One use of the law, as I, I, I suspect you probably will get into some of this, I bet, will be to exasperate us in our sin. Which then the other aspect of the law, which is what we're talking about now in redemptive history, but that was not the whole covenant. There's an aspect of that covenant where Adam takes the oath. And now we're expecting a second Adam who's going to take that oath, who himself will execute the covenant. And we see that, of course, going through the great uh, covenant heads of Moses and or Abraham and Noah, Abraham, Moses, Seth, before them, all of these covenant heads, the history of covenant heads in succession to Adam, who will draw you eventually to Jesus Christ. Who would, you know, and so that's a very important thing, and that's what you're going to get in a lot of this stuff. So I call it the sacred romance because, well, this is the way that Paul says it. Um, do you not know 
speaking to those who know the law, the covenant, remember the word covenant when you see law, especially Paul, that a married woman, what married woman? He's talking about Israel. He's talking about the church. A married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Likewise, you. Who are you? You, Israel, the true Israel of God, the Israel that is now the Israel of God, the church, the temple of God. Likewise, you have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may be married to another. Another who? Another law. Or another covenant executive of the law, if you will. And so this is, this is an amazing statement that I think oftentimes we don't know quite what to do with. But he's affirming, he's, he's assuming that you know redemptive history well. <laughs> that you have understood his corporate ego. I, 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 the very things I want to do, I couldn't do. Wanting to do it, I couldn't do it. I mean, he is describing redemptive history with those eyes. Don't read that subjectively. Even though I suspect we could all identify with that subjectively. Yeah, I know the struggle in myself too. So you have the same struggle internally that corporate Israel has had through redemptive history. It's true. But but be careful that you don't miss, but if you're not careful, you miss the whole argument. I, 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 and then all of a sudden, but praise be to God, that old Adam that was living within me is dead on the cross. A new Adam has emerged, the Adam of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, where did he talk about that? Again, I can't take you through the whole biblical theology of Romans right now. But do you remember anybody know the chapter where that's been dealt with already? Five. There you go. Good. Chapter 5. That's the whole point of chapter 5, which leads you to chapter 7. It's all been put to death. This first Adam, in fact, you know, all that. So, so that's, that's sort of the, I wanted to start you with a kind of biblical theology, but here's what's emerging here. There is a forensic aspect of our salvation that you want to embrace. Maybe Kevin or Craig are going to get into some of the contemporary issues with that. But there's a movement away from forensics, or what we call justification doctrine. And we're going to say, no, we can't. So one of the issues you're going to be dealing with, and again, I'm really relying on, I know these guys to do it, and I'm sure they will. One of the things you're going to be dealing with as a shepherd is all the various contemporary movements that are going on right now that's what we could call antinomian. And the way in which we want to sort of move away from the forensic kind of justifying way of thinking about our salvation. And the whole basis of that justification that you and I embrace here as a church through our confession is this legal, forensic, objectifying grace dynamic where there is part of the story of redemption is or salvation in the gospel is that something happened and we were absolutely not involved, not directly or subjectively. We just weren't involved. When I think of it, I'm sitting there looking at the cross on Calvary that day, 2,000 years ago, and I'm just going, you know, I have nothing, I'm not there. This is a transaction between the executive, the, the executor, the covenant executor, and the covenant maker. This is between God and His Son. I mean, it just gives me chills. This is a divine transaction. These people, these two, these two beautiful, divine Godhead persons, 
had contrived, contrived this whole thing before he ever even stepped foot on earth. That his purpose was to fulfill the vow, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. He was going to satisfy that purpose. And he was going to execute the covenant so that we could have eternal life, so that we could have reunion with God, legal reunion with God, so that we would never again have to worry about condemnation. We would never again have to worry about our identity being intact. We are sons and daughters of God. It's so crucial when we start thinking about the gospel to think about the doctrine of sonship. By the way, in our confession, you know, it's, it's one of the, I think it's the only Reformed confession that I'm aware of where there is a chapter on adoption. And many uh, covenant historians have, have, have marveled at that. It's a short chapter, but they wanted a different category. It was that's very interesting. I'm not suggesting that there's not mention of, ado- of adoption somewhere in other confessions. I don't maybe not right in my head. Don't know it. But but what I mean is that there's a different, distinct category: justification, adoption. They're related. They're both an objectifying forensic way of thinking, but one wants to focus us on the on the courtroom and one wants to focus us on the family room, if you will, and you know, I hope, sonship theology. There's There's been a movement recently on sonship. Now, it's, it's, it can go in different directions and good and bad, but the gist of it is that our, relate, our identity with God as a son or daughter is now not based on my work performance. We're no longer slaves, he says. And what he means by that is an employee who knows that their relationship to this corporation is predicated upon my performance. That's just not the same as, you know, I mean, if I employ someone as an owner of a business, you guys own a business. I mean, look, you got Josh over there, and he's a son, and he knows his relationship to that business is in a very different relationship than those guys sitting around. And I'm sure he's never said it, and I'm sure we try to go through the motions. Well, you've got to perform too, of course. And, but at the end of the day, he knows. You know, this is my family. This, this business belongs to us. I mean, there's a, there's a sense in which it changes the way you relate to that business, isn't it? You're willing to just give any. I mean, it's, it's you. It's your inheritance. You're, 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 you're working your own family here in your own inheritance. You know, it's not, you know, and so it's a very, and that's what Paul was getting at there when he gets into chapter 8, right after chapter 7. That you're now no, no longer slaves with sons. And you have this inheritance, and you relate now to the Father very differently. Well, the reason I go through this whole thing um, is, let's just look at it real quickly. So what is justification? Well, justification is an act of God's free grace, objectifying grace. Wherein he pardoneth all our sins and accept us as righteous in his sight. Righteous, that's a legal term. You, have a, you, you are now legally in right standing. Um, only for the righteousness of Christ. Imputed, and the key word there is imputed, not conferred. This is not a conferring grace, this is an imputed grace. It's declared. So there's a declarative nature to this. And we have to just receive it by grace through faith. Um, so any, let me just stop right there. Um, uh, is there any uh, yeah any questions thoughts I mean what's happening in your head that was sort of abstract and we're going to get into some specifics right now but what do you what are you hearing is that a... well it's very freeing mm. to know that um, the gospel even though we want to give us a the human sense that it's all. God and all he did, and nothing to do with us. Yeah. Other than being thankful. Good. I mean, it's free. It is free. It's not like you've got all this free 
And that's got to get into a pastor counseling situation. That, that's got to, before you can do anything in ministry, you've got to get that thing set. First things first. You've got to settle that fundamental relationship with God at, at an identity level here. I keep emphasizing that. At an identity level before you can start talking about your relationship with your child or your relationship with your wife or your relationship with your work or whatever these things are. You've got to get that, that you've got to start there. And I'm going to, in, in that practicality, yeah. Uh, I'm not a lawyer, but we have the same concept in our legal system, is my mm-hmm. understanding. Mm-hmm. There's such a thing as a unilateral contract or covenant mm. and a bilateral contract or covenant. And the bilateral depends on both parties to live up to whatever they've obligated themselves to. And it will have clauses in there about penalties if the other person doesn't do it. And in that sense, it is considered enforceable. Either party mm-hmm. can enforce it. Mm-hmm. The unilateral is like a last will and testament. Yeah. Yeah. And it's made by one person mm-hmm. uh, here. Uh, and it doesn't require anything from the other person. That's great. And that, that estate legally goes to that other person. And what's ironic about that is, now, I, I, we're running out of time, so I'm not going to um, yeah. ask the questions and lead you to it. The irony is that it's a both end when it comes to this covenant. Right. Because I if know. you think about it, no, if you think about it, no, the thing, what I mean by this, it starts as a bilateral I mean, the fact is, Israel was supposed to satisfy its side of the deal. We have a substitute Israel who does the bilateral, who handles that bilateral aspect, who who comes in and satisfies Israel's role in this covenant. So it's actually a bilateral covenant from beginning to end. We are saved by obedience to the law. So I could ask the question. I've done it before. How are we saved? What? And you're going to say, by grace, your faith alone. Yes. But how are you saved? You're saved by works of the law. Fulfilled the law. You're saved by the works of the law. Right. By Christ fulfilling the works of the law. And He is you. He is me by virtue of that faith. Faith is what enables me to put my faith in Him and not myself to be me when we deal with that transaction with God. You go and you be me when you go to God because I can't be me for me. <laughs> You be me. He let's, has assumed our responsibility. Yeah. So let's do this real quick. Um, I'm going to just, you have this in your thing, and I'm going to let you do it. I, I only have about 15 more minutes, and so I really want to get to a point here. Um, but here's, so, so I'm not going to walk you through the gospel. This, every, this is just sort of a simple presentation. I hope that you walk through it. But it starts with an honest admission. What we just, it, it literally walks through Paul's egos, his I statements in Romans 7. And you could walk right through it, and this discovery, what's impossible for me is not impossible with God. God is glorified by faith in Christ now, not by me. It's a Christ-centered glorification. Um, our gospel then being our ultimate confidence. And you see some great passages there. Um, you know you know the phrase, the gospel then is not just the ABCs, but the A to Zs of the Christian life, and it lives two ways. And this is, this is the, path, the, the slide that I wanted to turn us a little bit. We've been talking about the gospel. We've been talking about its biblical uh, theological context. What about shepherding? And I want to focus especially on the the ABCs and the A to Zs. And one of the theses that I want to really push on you today, and it's one I'm going to end with, is this thesis that in shepherding, you've got to respect the order. 
you got to deal with the ABCs before you start dealing with the ABCs. The kind of pietism, the kind of moralism, the kind of Christianity that wants to start with the A to Z's doesn't understand the gospel. I'm going to be that blunt about it. They don't understand the gospel. And that is a really significant statement that I think you're about to find is, oh boy, that, that, really Preston, do you really mean that? No, I'm going to really say. To put it another way, a kind of Christianity that starts with sanctification and doesn't start with justification doesn't understand the gospel. Because what you've done is you've preempted the objectifying grace. The very basis from which all change happens. It's got to start with a change of identity. It's got to start with a change of legal family relationship to God. The prodigal son has got to come home before he can start working the land again. And this is where I find almost, I would say 90% of the errors of Christianity seems somehow to deal with this problem of starting with the ethics. It's the problem of parenting. Thinking that we can create ethics without creating new identity. What is a gospel-centered parent? It's got to start with an identity. And it's always there. Now, obviously, you're doing both at the same time as a parent. It gets really complex, doesn't it? We can't just say, I'm going to wait for you to get all of it straightened out in your identity before you have any rules in the house. Uh, That won't work. So you're doing it both at the same time, but you're constantly in the way in which you parent having to deal with that. Marriage. I mean... I can't imagine a marriage ever being fixed until there's grace-based communion with one another. This identity is resolved. So that the performance thing is, is, is diminished. So that the, I've got to prove myself. Almost all arguments are proving yourself. You know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fundamental identity problem here. And so it, it's so important. So first, it's not only our ticket to heaven based on grace through faith. It is the way God that sets us free to live more transformed lives on earth. This object, this way that we've talked about the gospel the last 30 minutes. And of course, it's not just about the inward person concerning our spiritual needs, but it's going to affect our outward life. It's going to affect, it's going to empower us to live a different kind of life outwardly. It's not just my internal stuff. It's transformative inside and out. Um, so the effect of the gospel, um, it's not just a theology, but it's a way to do theology. I mean, think about it. I wish I could just really play down on these things. It's, it's not just about having this doctrine. It's how do you do theology itself? It's the gospel's not just a message to believe, but a transforming power that possesses the changes our approach to everything. I, I list some things here. Again, I think these guys are going to cover this. I think Craig is going to be working on some of these ideas, I, I think, through the counseling stuff. But um, it's going to change your approach to suffering. Now, can you? I hope I'm talking to pretty sophisticated theological people right now, so I'm going to assume you know what I mean. But yeah, how does every suffering go through the cross in my life? How does it reinterpret the purpose of suffering? To believe that God ordains all things whatsoever, and that part of my experiencing my reunion with Christ requires a mortification of my idols. And why then suffering? Well, we know why suffering. If my idol is self, as my idol is self-sufficiency, 
Let's take some sufficiency away from the boy. Let's make him dependent. Let's make him realize that his health is not in his own hands. His eyes, his this, his that. I mean, boy, let's let's hit it. Let's hit it. That's my coach saying, boy, I got I see potential in you, son. You know? Run a hundred laps. What? I thought you run a hundred laps, son. I see potential in you. I'm gonna kill you out here. Because I think you're gonna do something special in that field. I've said it before, when my coach stopped yelling at me, the football coach, you just yell. Yelling is just the beautiful thing to hear a coach do. It really is. I'm not lying to you. I mean, it's, that means he loved, he's, he's in it. And he's passionate. And, he, and man, he sees me. But the guys that didn't get yelled at, we pitied them. They're bench warmers. They're, they're, they're not important to the team. You know, now Grant. So God yells at me sometimes. I'm going to say that. Lisa's saying, boy, that sounds real grand. It may be. But yeah. But, but he yells at me through circumstances. And that's a cross. And that's going to transform the way I handle that cross. That's a shepherding moment, brothers and sisters. Or our approach to marriage. You know, listen to your communication. I mean, God, Lisa, I, we're still struggling with this. Listen to how we talk. What do we do? What do we say? Does it assume that one another's identity is intact? Does it assume that we're justified, not with just with God, but with one another, that we don't have to justify ourselves? Oh, and on it goes. Our approach to vocation. Is it, I, I, my identity's fine. I don't need this job. I think everyone should be able to say, I don't existentially need this job. You should be able to say that. I don't need this job. Yeah, I need some money. You know, yeah, I need a few things in a temporal sense, but in my identity, I don't need this job. You know? Our pro- and think about it. How's that going to change the way you do your work? It's going to transform the way you do your work. You're not going to manipulate people now if you don't need this job. You're not going to be come home all anxious all the time if you don't need this job for your identity. You're not going to be worrying about, you know, you're going to want to please your boss, of course, or you're going to want to please, you're going to, but really you're going to want to be faithful to please Christ. You're going to say, have I pleased him today? Did I give him a good day's work? Does he see what I, what I, the, the challenges that I was dealing with? And yeah, he does. So whether anybody else saw it, they, God sees it. I am just always amazed at the confidence of Paul. When I endure uh, criticism, I'm, I'm just a, I'm a, I'm a mess behind scenes. Only by faith can I walk out in the public and, and act like I know what I'm doing. But I'm a mess behind the scenes. I'm just second-guessing myself, staying up at night thinking, because I don't know, what does it mean to be humble? I think I'm supposed to be humble, which means I should be second-guessing everything I do. But what does it mean to be confident? And see, there's a part of this Paul... Because his identity was intact when he got persecuted, it's amazing how many times he could come back and say, you're the problem. <laughs> you know, because he, he knew who he was, and he knew the covenant, and he knew what he was doing was right, and it wasn't really up for grabs as to the public opinion about him. It's amazing. Now, that doesn't mean you're not humble. We're not infallible. Nobody is. So Paul's not infallible. Maybe we just don't get to see much of that side of Paul. I don't know. We don't, though. We don't see much of it. I mean, other than these the moments where he says, I'm, I'm a chief of shinners and all that stuff. On and on it goes. It's our approach to sanctification. You know, have you ever thought about the fact that you can't be holy unless you first experience the gospel? What, what is holiness? 
well, the sum of the law. What? Love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. There's not one activity you can do, however good it is outwardly, that is holy if it is motivated by fear or motivated by basically selfish. I'm doing this in order to get something from God. I'm doing this in order to get His acceptance even. If you're doing it to get acceptance, it's self-love and it's not holiness. The only way you can be holy is if it's really done out of thanksgiving and and, and commitment to, to your Father. To where you can say, why are you doing this? Well, for the mere good pleasure of doing it. I mean, God says he, he saves us in our confession by His mere good pleasure. Why are you doing this, Preston? For, my, for the mere pleasure of, of serving God. It's just the pleasure to serve someone I love. And I want... So what, is we, what do we have? Perfect fear, perfect love. What? Cast out fear. It's not accidental. The very next verse says, we love because He first loved us. That's the only way you can be holy. Is to love because you first have internalized the love of God for you. I mean, this is getting deep, guys. You're dealing with someone who's a servant leader team leader here, and they're resentful about the work that they're putting in. Any kind of resent in serving Christ, any kind, at any level, servant leader, elder, pastor, whatever. What's the problem? It's the gospel again. You know, how are you going to handle that? Are you going to sit there and try to convince them why it's to their benefit to serve? No, what I'm going to say is, well, then don't serve until you can do it happily for the Lord. And now let's talk about the gospel. Let's talk about what's going on in your relationship with Christ. And do you really experience truly yourself? Have you internalized the love He has for you? A kind of love that eventually will transform your motivation for being an elder. Because resentment is not something I see in the Scripture as a proper motivation for service. It's a sinful motivation for service. Now, don't be wrong. You can't just... Every elder, every pastor, every WLD, everybody's going to be struggling at times with the gospel. But let's put it in those frames. We're struggling with the gospel. And so I'm not saying, okay, Preston, quit. You know, it would be pretty chaotic if every time I'm feeling a little bit of resentment about being your pastor, I quit. No, I just, that means I've got to go take some time. I've got to take a day. I've got to go and get some gospel reorientation going on. I've got to sit down. And for me, sometimes it's a, you know, I mean, I can tell you what I do sometimes. Either I go to a place that's, you know, where I get a big dose of temple creation and I open up my Bible and I read, you know, cover to cover the, the Gospel of John. And I just read it. And I say, now I'm not reading it for theology. I'm not reading it. <laughs> just, just please, God, tell me. Show me. Help me experience what kind of love you've given to me so that I can get my identity straightened out here. You know, it's gotta, you've got to do that, Shepherd. okay? You've got to do that. I don't know why I'm going off on this rabbit trail, but maybe I need to. You've got to do that pretty regularly. I mean, when's the last time you spent a real personal retreat with God because you needed to get an identity straightened out. When's the last time you said, you know, I'm going to take a day off and I'm not going to be with my family, I'm not going to be with anybody, I'm just going to read and meditate and pray and ask God to restore in me the joy of my salvation. Because if you don't have that joy, which is basically experiencing the power of the gospel in your life, you're going to be a dangerous shepherd leader. Because you're going to be doing it out of resentment or you're going to be doing it out of guilt. Both of which are identity problems. Both of which are going to be motivations that are going to end up probably abusing people inadvertently. Parenting, same way. You know, 
marriage, same way. I mean, are y'all getting the sense of how big this issue is? And we're talking about the body, and you thought you knew maybe the body. Yeah, we know body. We got arms. No, let's talk about how this works in this life. Um, on and on. It's it's going to approach everything. Um, what to look for in a true gospel experience, and I, I hit that for you. Uh, Again, this is a little bit repetitive, so I'm not going to go there. Again, the Gospels, not just the ABCs, but the A to Zs. You know the cliche. By the way, Tim Keller is always attributed to this, and he would be the first to tell you, but it's, it's, it's not his. It's, it's actually Jack Miller's. <laughs> um, Jack Miller had a huge impact. He was the father of the Sonship movement, as probably some of you know. And, 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 um, and you know, again, there's some aspects of Sonship that kind of can get antinomian if, if in some of its trajectories. But, uh, but boy, this is a guy that rediscovered the gospel, and so did his wife, and, and in, latter, in the latter years of his ministry, actually. And that's why it's so powerful that he realized, hold it, I, I had the A disease. I, I knew the gospel for heaven, but I hadn't really appropriated it yet in my ministry and in my life. And that's why I keep emphasizing that for you guys. So I'm going to close with this. Um, what are the gospel challenges? Well, I know, I think Kevin's going to get a lot into the law and gospel issue, right, Kevin? I know where you're going to go. So this is, you can look at this, but this is a nice little, uh, I, I call it, you know, my training, uh, I took an ethics class uh, under a guy named Ralph Potter at Harvard. And um, it really transformed the way I think and process things. And it's called the Potter Box. He, 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 he developed this during the period of the, of the uh, war, the, uh, um, you know, uh, Vietnam War. And, uh, and it, it kind of what you do is you take two concepts and you and then you explore the relation of those concepts. Basically, it's very simple. And if you were to look at it, uh, this is you know if you had a kind of high law, high grace, low law, low grace kind of if you took those as symbols. These are the various relations that you could come up with. You know, moralism, Phariseeism, hedonism, gospel. I would make up a word so that you notice it. Gospelistic. Can you see it? Oh, you can't see the word there very well, can you? Um, and, and so this is one, and I'm just, and so what I do is I explore those four, okay, what would it look like to be a moralistic Christian, or a Pharisee Christian, or a hedonistic Christian? All of them have to do with high law, high grace, low law, low grace, high grace, low law. We want both and. We want high law, high grace. But the, but the gospel reorients the way that you relate to law through grace versus through self-performance. And it's this objectifying thing that we've been talking about now for 45 minutes, coming out of redemptive history and the covenantal strain. So this is, again, I'm asking you to become practitioners here. I'm not asking you to relate to the gospel as just a, a person. How do you take this paradigm that you see in front of you and bring it into every counseling, bring it into every relationship, every situation in ministry? How do you do that as a shepherd? What is a paradigm that's working through your head? What are you listening for? And hedonism, they all have their characteristics, and I won't go through them here, uh, but you can go back and look at them. Finally, and this is where I'm ending, um, first things first, philosophy of ministry. Um, it's so important, and, and by the way, there's a lot more here in your, uh, I, I've just, I've had to go through quickly. I knew I was going to run out of time, so I gave you this. So I hope you'll review it. Um, but, but it's, you know, the whole thing here about gospel spirituality, what to look for, it's all there. But on your last page, if you would, um, is where I'm at right now, page six. And, um, I, I said earlier that, that the order, what we call order salutis, the order of salvation issue, 
that has a very real shepherding pastoral component to it. And you all heard us talk about already the extent and limits of church power. And in that conversation, you're going to be thinking in terms of what, what falls under the church jurisdiction as an organization and what falls under the state jurisdiction as an organization. That's the way that conversation went. You know, church, state, jurisdictional authority, power, the use of that power, etc. You know, we, for instance, in that paradigm, I'm going to say, look, I'm, I'm opposed to the church uh, forming Christian schools. I think it's outside the jurisdiction of the church to be teaching math and science. I'm not opposed to Christian individuals forming Christian schools. Like what you're doing. I'm all for that, if that's what you feel is the best way to, to raise your children, etc. You see, did you see the difference, though? What can the church do qua church versus what can individual? People say, well, Preston, you're not, you're not for social justice and mercy. You've got to be joking me. But I'm going to do it. But I'm going to do it as I'm not going to, as the church, take a position on macroeconomics and what strategy we do. So I'm not going to form mercy organizations that are common grace purposed. But I am going to tell Christians to go down to the green on one Saturday day and go serve the heck out of the city, and and to do that as a as a collaborative of other Christians, etc. What we did a couple of months ago, and so so understand that conversation clearly. Distinguishing, that's one that made you say, I'm going to distinguish between what the church can do as church, as, a, as an organization under its a divine mandate and authority of, of, of organization, versus what Christians can do as Christians being resident aliens in and under the jurisdiction of the state. And we're all called to be resident aliens individually. The church being the institution on this side, the state being the institution on this side, and the Christian participating in both. Not one, both. So I'm not from isolationism. I'm not for, for fortress mentalities, all of that stuff. You're in the world, baby, and you're serving it, and you're loving it, and you're wanting your city to be in a better place, but I'm not asking my church to affirm a program and create an organization for common grace. Now, that's the old conversation, and it's still relevant. I mean, the other one. <laughs> this is different, but it's related. This says... I understand from a uh, pedagogical, but also from a, a pastoral or, 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 or counseling sort of methodology that you've got to go first things first. You've got to start with this order. And notice Jesus said, has no one condemned you? She said, I'm obviously picking up in the middle of a conversation, but this is the gist of it. No one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. What do we call that in Scripture? Absolution. Neither do I condemn you. You're set free for your faith in me. And then what, is he, then what does he say? Go from now on and sin no more. Antinomianism might sit, get nervous about using the law to know how to be holy. We're not there. Um, a moralist might be concerned that they delay talking about the sin because they want to first talk about or the Pharisee, or the moralist, both, because they because they turn sin into a culture war, and they're more concerned about winning a culture war than they are about winning a soul. They've lost the focus of conversion, and they're focusing now on the on the purpose of transforming a city or something like that. And so, this is very important. You see it twice here: the important order of salvation, getting first things first. Um, I wrote a letter recently that hopefully all of you've read on the uh, Supreme Court thing, and it was just I saw that you know you might wonder you know you know I don't do that often, but I, it really wasn't about the Supreme Court. If you read that letter, 
I mean, I, I get with it, identified with what the angst is, etc. But my, I saw that as a great opportunity to, to illustrate to my congregation how we should be engaging cultural issues. And for me, the focus was this point. The focus was to say, guys, are you in this uh, to, to get the right candidate in the office or something? That's fine, do that. But as a church, I want to make Christians. We're here to make Christians. Christians whose identity has been transformed. Christians who are now experiencing the gospel. And let's make Christians. And then Christians who've experienced the transformative power of the gospel in their lives are now receptive to really considering something perhaps they never could have considered before. Make all sinners Christians. And make all Christians sanctified. In that order. And you have to pick and choose your debates. Yeah. You can talk about the issues of homosexuality or, or whatever. But, but really, are you going to convert a person there? Or are you going to convert about them talking about the gospel and, and setting up the context where it's going, to be, it's going to set them free because they have an identity now that's been restored that they could actually admit to sin without crushing their identity? If my identity is in my gender, how are you going to change that issue? Your identity's got to be in the gospel, and then I can change that issue. I hope you, so I hope you read. This is a nice little short summary of this first thing first. And this is going to go into everything you do, whether it's your counseling sessions, whether it's, I mean, I meet with, you know, I've met this week with three people wanting to join the church. And every single time I start with what we describe as the gospel and this objectifying aspect of assurance. Are you experiencing really sure? And a lot of people say, yeah, I know about the ABCs. They'll say, I know about heaven and, and I got a ticket. Okay, but really. Let's talk about it. Do you experience that assurance in your life? Did you want to say something? And then I'm through. Just that, uh, getting back to your first quote about I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I mean, often yeah. churches and ministries are ashamed that the gospel is actually the power to change the, the ABCs. And so it's, it gets to the sense where, well, you know, we're really relevant because we're into this and that and other things. And oh, you brother, know, what that's we've great. done is just kind of minimize the gospel and said it's irrelevant. And, and you know, lots of other churches have done this to where the gospel becomes de-emphasized and then pushed to the corner and then in the closet and then gone. You know, and, and you're just working on these other things that... Um, so to be gospel-centered is to say the gospel is significant. I'm not ashamed of it. It does have the power to do these other things and that the implications of that all work out. Brother, you just... You, you preach it, brother. That is so perfect. But that's exactly the point. It really comes down to the fact that Christians are ashamed of the gospel. It doesn't make headlines. We're ashamed of it. We really don't believe in the power of the gospel to transform a gay person. So we're going to have to hit it this way and make it an ethical issue. No, let's make it an identity issue. People live out of their identity. Ethical orientation comes out of your identity. And that's what's going on. And again, I could relate this to all sorts of issues, not just the, the sexual issue or gender issue, but it's an identity issue. So thank you. That's perfectly said. It's exactly what I wanted to come full circle with. That, that really, are you as a shepherd leader ashamed of the gospel? Is it sound too ABC to you? That's really all I wanted to say today. I'm afraid that most, too many churches and too many Christians think of it as ABCs. And they don't see the power of it in every single shepherding moment. And I am not exaggerating. Every single shepherding moment. That's what we mean by being a gospel-centered church. 
I want to leave with this phenomenal statement by John Calvin. We see that our whole salvation, all of it, all of its parts, he's saying the same thing, are comprehended in Christ. We should therefore take care not to derive the least portion of it from anywhere else. If we seek salvation, we are taught by the very name of Jesus that it is of Him. If we seek any other gifts of the Spirit, they will be found in His anointing. If we seek strength, it lies in His dominion. If purity, in His conception. If gentleness, it appears in His birth. For by His birth, He was made like us in all respects that He might learn to feed our pain, feel our pain. If we seek redemption, it lies in His passion. If acquittal, in His condemnation. If remission of the curse in the cross. If sanctification in His sacrifice. If purification in the blood of reconciliation. In His descent into hell. If mortification of the flesh in His tomb. If newness of life in the resurrection. If immortality in the same. If inheritance of all blessings in His kingdom. If untroubled expectation of judgment in the power given to him to judge. In short, since rich store of every kind of good abounds in him, let us drink our fill from this fountain and from no other. That's what this church needs to strive for. We're not there. I'm not there. But let's keep striving for it. Amen. Um, We can tackle some very particular questions that you will deal with in any type of shepherding role as you're discipling, as you're making decisions about the church and thinking about new members. We've been doing a lot of new member interviews um, for the joining that's coming up and um, just sort of the questions that get asked there. But but really, as you've just heard, it, it covers all aspects of Christian life. So I'm really going to start to frame this um, within its its covenant context, and uh, I hope you're getting the appreciation of the the depth of this because it seems really easy to say, "What is the gospel? Are you are you saved by grace or are you saved by works?" And and everybody here is going to get that question right. And likewise, most of the congregants. Not many people are going to say, well, you know, I really think I need to earn my salvation with my works. Um, That's not going to be the confession that comes out of their lips. But it is the way, very subtly, that they operate. It's the way we operate. And it's being able to sort of uncover that and address some of that that, that'll be um, essential to getting the gospel straight. So uh, I know Craig's going to hit on a lot of those counseling issues. I'm going to go into the, the um, what might seem theoretical, but hopefully bring it down to the practical of understanding what the law is. Why did God give the law? How does it function now for the Christian? Um, because all sorts of questions would either lead you to say the Bible is, you know, two thirds irrelevant to me because the law has no meaning, or lead you to some really uh, strange beliefs because the law is eminently relevant and needing to be applied now. Um, And how do we make those distinctions between uh, not applying it or applying it? Um, And then we'll talk about sanctification, which is a huge issue that um, has gotten into a lot of uh, confusion in recent years. And then um, a note on assurance as well. But, um, but let me start with, with prayer.
Um, Father, we do thank you for this time. We thank you for your gospel. We thank you for your word that so um, clearly um, speaks to us, even in your condescending lisp, um, so that we could understand it. And even um, in spite of that, we still stumble over these profound truths and um, even basic truths. We, uh, we confuse and muddle in our own sinfulness. Uh, forgive us, Lord, and help us, and help us to help others uh, to continue to point to the gospel. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So I, in your handout, the one that says gospel and salvation, I, I want to begin with the sort of questions that a gospel-centered church will have to grapple with because of um, this commitment to, to gospel-centered. When we say we're gospel-centered, these bullet points rattle off some of these questions, was the law then just for some bygone era? Was it just for the Old Testament and, and to exasperate Israel? And is, should it be now done away with? Um, was the Old Testament faith based on legalism? Was Moses saved by works? Was uh, when we look at um, the passion of an, of, a, of Elijah or of some of these guys who were zealous for God's holy law, um, was that immoralism? Where is grace displayed there? Should we seek to institute divine law in the civil sphere today? Should um, the courthouse have the Ten Commandments up? Should your schools have teachings in, the public schools should have, should they have teachings in the Bible? Should your legislators use the, the law of God as the principle from which they derive human laws? Are we saved by grace and then sanctified by the law? Are we saved by grace but kept saved by obedience? And finally, how do we escape legalism, which is salvation by works, without falling into antinomianism? Which you heard a couple of times referenced, but that's a complete rejection of God's law, often called cheap grace. How do you not fall into the one by avoiding the other. So, y'all feel good about all those answers to that? Those who feel like you have this? I mean, those are, the, those are the practical issues. I'm going to come around to these in the end, and please have these in your mind, and if you feel like they're not getting answered, um, let's, let's talk and interact with it. Um, but any other questions that you can think of that might relate to this topic of law and gospel? Because I know I didn't get them all. Discipline. Okay, like um, like godly discipline of a Christian. Um, yeah. Okay. All right. So let, let's think of this. Um, how do we answer these questions? How how we answer these questions will influence um, our government of the church and an individual care of souls. And um, we really just need to to dive into an understanding of the law gospel distinction here. So we're going to do a bit of hermeneutics and a bit of theology. And so a little bit of Bible interpretation and theology, but this is not a hermeneutics class. It's not a Bible interpretation class. It's not a theology class. 
Um, so it's going to be a run-through quickly of both of those things because they both need to be the, the spine or the skeleton, if you were, to be able to deal with the practical questions. Um, so let's start out. Uh, I put a, a um, first little note there in part one as I go through this law gospel overview. Uh, throughout this section, I'm going to refer to the law as Torah, which is God's law. Um, sometimes when we read New, the New Testament, we see the word law and we can and, and hear things against the law and just think moralisms in general, like being a good person, being nice, having people like you, all those things. Uh, that's not what Paul's talking about when he uses the word law. And uh, think about the distinction between that, because what Paul's talking about is things that are in Scripture that God commands, not just cultural things we feel compelled to. So let's be, that's even a bigger issue, because now we're talking about things that, uh, that are in Scripture that seem to be speaking to the, the people of God when he makes comments about the law. What are we really saying about its binding character to us? Um, so why does God seem, um, why does it seem that God offers blessings and curses in return for obedience and disobedience? Um, who has you ever struggled with that when you read the Old Testament? And then, you know, there are some passages in the New Testament that sort of hint this as well, but you, it's really there in the Old Testament uh, all over this the place, but who here has ever struggled with the fact that it looks like if you obey, God will bless you. If you don't, God's going to punish you. Anybody? Okay. Yeah. Right. When when you approach that, just, you know, I don't, I'm not looking for, you can give a real deep answer if you want to, but um, what do you usually do with that? thing to do, Craig. Um, yeah, I think, I think a lot of us yeah, a lot of us a lot of us can ignore it, right? Infuse a lot of grace into it. You can you can infuse a lot of grace into it. Okay. Okay. And now, what do you mean by that? Do you mean that like it really looks that way, but you know, God's kind of fudging in his. He really says he'll he'll curse us, but you know he grades on a curve, and we're all kind of messed up because that's that's one type of like grace. Well, knowing the full gospel as well, knowing that all things work together for our good. Okay. For those who are called according to His purpose, and I'm called according to His purpose. So whatever I'm going through, even if it's discipline or whatever, it's for His it's for my good, for His glory. Um, yeah. Okay. I mean, it does look black and white when you read it. Yeah, let me, let, me, let me do read some of those here. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land which the Lord your God gives you. Deuteronomy. Behold, I set... I, this, is, there's such, this is in the context of a lot larger curses and blessings. Behold, I set before you this day a blessing and a curse. A blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you this day, and the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way which I command you this day. Yeah, I can see where you could read blessings and curses into that. No, it's like clear, like really clear. I don't know, I realize that I do. But 
it's actually out loud or in my own head. Yeah. I put ultimate, ultimate blessing, ultimate curse, and bring it all down to the kingdom, heaven. Okay, well, let me, that, that sounds really scary. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's, okay, you're saved or you're eternally damned well, on your... Obeying the, and then it comes back down to Christ on the cross. Okay. In the, the way you get to the ultimate blessing is because none of us can fulfill the law. Okay. And Jesus Christ took it on his shoulders. And that all of these, if you put that layer of Christ in there, and that the blessing is not a tempor- uh, tempor- uh, temporal blessing. Okay. That that is, I think usually how I try to explain it is, there are natural laws in place. There are consequences to your actions. They just happen in the world. Yeah. And so, you know, you may not even be directly responsible for the sin. Yeah. The effects of sin on your life. And that whole conversation, too. But yeah. I think how I Yeah. One more. Uh, this doesn't happen to me, of course, but I see a lot of people that rationalize, <laughs> deceive themselves. I'm really honoring my parents, or I'm really doing. Okay, this, all right, all right. You know, yeah, okay, I, so I don't do this. Yeah, I make that yeah, clear. right. So it's still working with this principle that God will bless or curse, but. Again, maybe God didn't grade you on a curve, but you're grading you on a curve. Saying <laughs> you're doing better at this. No, absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I'm yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So I, it's it's hard work to do this with every Old Testament passage. I'm I'm not saying it's easy, but yeah, there there is. If you don't do the hard work in in uh, figuring out the context, you're going to wind up with a really dangerous theology. And it will it will turn um, it, exactly sort of the the op, mere opposite from Jennifer. You will wind up with a theology that is absent Christ completely and no need for Christ. Um, so let, let, let's just sort of get into this. Um, the quote I have at the very bottom of page one: the covenant of context. Everyone agrees that all interpretations of Scripture should be sensitive to the context in which a given passage of scripture appears. And I think we all understand that. If we see somebody by a well drawing out water, we're not to think, yes, so now we need to make sure we get our water from a well and not from, you know. We know that there's a context to some of the things that, that are said. Our point is that every passage of scripture falls into some covenantal context, not just age, of um, the error that you're in, but there's a covenantal context that 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 uh, scripture unfolds, and and the different eras of how God unfolds His message should change how we understand Scripture. Um, falls into uh, some covenantal context as well as some historical or cultural or linguistic context. The interpreter must always ask in what ways, if any, are the peculiar features of a given covenant administration reflected in this particular law. If we ask this of Leviticus 20.11, we answer the covenant people in Sinai administration were required to wield the sword, exercising civil judicial authority to punish certain crimes capitally. The covenant people of the new covenant administration are neither required nor permitted institutional as the people of God, the church, to wield the sword in such a manner. On the other hand, the New Covenant continues to teach that sexual immorality is sin. 
This is not peculiar to the Sinai administration, yet we should discipline church members who are sexually immoral, but we should not ex- execute them. Um, what, what do you hear Gordon doing in that quote? How is he understanding the law? Okay. So over time, you need to look at it. Right, within within the the context, yep. Well, you're looking at places, which covenant is in at the time, so what does it mean for the church at that time? Yep. So I guess what I'm really getting at is, what effect does this have when you read the law? Um, it's not just that you can take and say, all law is wrong. All law is bad, and it was for a different time. No, because that would really throw off how we should understand this. Some of it is saying, what is the context? How does it get worked out through Christ? Um, and how is it applied now in, in our age? We've been told that the church is not a military or political institution. It's not a kingdom of this world characterized by this world Um, so we have to be careful in saying God talked to his people Israel and how they should set up a government thus we should in the same way set up a civil government Um, that's that's a, a shift that we have to be careful with yet there is some application to this um all right, God's original design. So I'm going to start, I'm going to back up and walk us through the covenantal context of this in, in three main um, categories. Creation, fall, redemption. It's about as basic as it gets. But I'm going to look at, at the purpose of the law uh, originally as designed before the sin entered the world, uh, the, the implications of sin and what sin has done, and then redemption and how we're to understand the law in the context of redemption. So th- this is the frame of the law, and, and it might surprise us to think that there is law before there's sin. Do you know that? Do you know that there's law? What's a, an example of that? What's an example of a law before sin enters the world? If you if you think of the um, the story starting in Genesis, going okay, that's the very very simple one. Do not eat of the fruit. Be fruitful and multiply. Take dominion. Okay, take dominion. Yeah, keep in guard to garden. There's all sorts of things you're hearing now. And they're not just these specific things, but you can place these all into categories. We think about a category for um, about um, be fruitful and multiply. What what category would we even put that under? In, in huh? family, family, marriage, fidelity. You know, would um, you know? You could see where adultery would be a violation of this. You know, uh, you think of uh, don't eat the fruit. I mean, you, there is there is a a God honoring and idolatry that that switches some of these around. So they're not just these particular things, but there's law in there before sin enters the world 
that, um, that rightly orders who we are as people. Um, Westminster Confession, chapter 7, says, The first covenant made with man was a covenant of works, wherein life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. So how? So I, I think sometimes we don't we don't think of this um, this covenant of works with Adam because we don't think that there's any consequences. But how? What what was Adam really living for here? Um, not just to stay in the garden. I mean, there's a sense in which the garden itself was impermanent. There was night and day. I mean, there was transition. There's not, the garden's not where you want to stay. And the Sabbath, even there in the garden, um, was pointing forward to a time when there would be an end. I mean, or, or a, it's, it was stretching forward to a hope. Does that make sense? Because a lot of times I've always heard this kind of thing, returning to the garden. Yeah, no, we're not, yeah, we're not returning to the garden. We're not, we're not returning to the garden as it was. And in fact, that's, that's really good news for us. Especially you think about ourselves. Um, uh, we were able to sin in the garden. When in the consummation, when heaven and earth combine at the end, we're not going to be able to sin. You know, Augustine has a great sort of fourfold way to go through all that. Um, but uh, even the world, in, in, in as as was then, there is is there night and day in the new heavens and new earth. According to Revelation, sun's there all the time. I mean, there's there's, and I think we can read into that. There's a sense of impermanence and a longing to for something else. So while we would say the garden is good, as God rules it good, there is a sense in which it's not it's it's not to remain static like that. That it was it was pushing forward, going forward to something else. And that's really significant because that implies that there is some sort of judgment that um, that could have been positive if Adam kept his obedience. And negative and we know we know there's a negative because he didn't, and he sinned. We all feeling good about that? And I know that that concept can be pretty new and and radical as we think about the nature of God and how He deals with people. But there is some sense of evaluation, a covenant of works. All right, and we're going to categorize His call to be obedient under. Um, the the name the moral law, and we will show a division of these laws later, um, where you have. Does anybody know the three? Some of you certainly do from some training. Craig probably knows it. Good. So there's the civil law, the ceremonial law, and the moral law. We'll get to that later. But the moral law is there in the garden, and while some would say that that's a false distinction or the scripture never explains it that way it's it is helpful to divide those up in some sense it's not just a requirement but it's a reflective of the moral nature of god god is holy he's just he's good and man being created in god's image um, 
one can see a form of all the Ten Commandments even prior to sin entering the world. So if you look at the garden and what's commanded, um, you see the Ten Commandments. They're present. Everything from Sabbath to, to adultery to stealing to honoring God, um, you know, I think that they're all sort of, they're all sort of based there. Um, and the, our, our catechisms will say, where's the, the moral law summarily comprehended? And it's in Ten Commandments, you know, the, the whole basis of it. All right, so that's original design. We've been given this moral law. Something then happened as we sinned. And it's not just the condemnation, the legal piece, but there's also dehumanization. We become, we're becoming less human with our sin. It devolves our identity and our purpose. Listen to the way that Romans 1 talks about this. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their heart, impurity, and dishonoring their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men, likewise, gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving themselves with due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what they ought not to to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. What do you see in Paul's description of sin here? What is he saying about sin? It's all consuming. It's all consuming. It's all in all aspects of it. Yeah, yeah. And I think also if you can draw from this that part of it is the sins that we call sins are really a consequence of the devaluing of who we are as a person. We, when we shift our, our identity from worshipers of God and in the image of God to worshiping creatures... We, we then wind up in homosexuality. We wind, then wind up in slandering, haters of God, insolent, boastful. I mean, so the, the, the sins are actually a outflowing of an identity that gets skewed from the, the main issue here was that we our worship of God got shifted. We were supposed to be images of God, reflecting God back to creation. You know, sort of that tilted mirror where image of God then goes to creation. We've sort of put the mirror like this, and we're imaging creation back to itself. And our sins then are, are almost just um, part of being dehuman, uh, dehumanized from this. So, is that 
that make sense? Uh, yeah, go ahead. The guilt of all of this should motivate us to go back to God. I mean, the, the sin itself is, in a sense, a mercy leading to guilt, and then we are departing out. Yeah. Yeah, so there's two aspects. I want to I want to keep the categories. The guilt is the legal thing, and then the and then the behavioral stuff is is who we are as as a person. Um, but yeah, the guilt, it, who we are, should should show this condemnation, but it doesn't. As he you will say earlier in that passage, we suppress God's truth and unrighteousness. Well, it's kind of like with the culture we're we're saying that. It, we are freeing ourselves to be ourselves by doing whatever feels good or whatever seems to come naturally. So yeah. whatever behavior it is, our culture would tell us that they are, we're freeing ourselves to express our humanity more when, in fact, it's very much less of ourselves when we are not being what we were created to be. Right. So right. the culture would tell us something different and would tell us that we're more free by just doing whatever feels good. And, yeah. Now, now just think about the impact of this when we think about being gospel-centered. Because what's the problem with these sins? They go to a root problem with our heart and worship. So what would happen if we just said, well, just clean up. I mean, stop being homosexual. Or stop being a slanderer. Or stop, you know, just stop those things. When the law comes in and says, just stop, what are we left with? Well, we can't do that. <laughs> One, we can't do it. Yeah, one, we can't do it. But even if we tried, we still have a deeper problem. We still have a deeper problem that's not addressed. So, um, yeah, Peggy. And what I find, the more I become gospel-centered, the less angry I am Mm -hmm. at circumstances, my kids, my own. Because I I can get furious that things aren't happening the way I want them to happen. Yeah. And um, But when you become gospel-centered... Like in the first section, it, it, it releases that burden of you having to be the corrective, etc. And you start to rest, and your Creator who knows how everything's put together. Yeah. And there's there's something really patient and good that happens as you rest in in, in our Creator and and the work that He's doing in His timing. Yeah. But if not, and you're trying to do this. And if you're leaning that way, you would get furious that anybody would even expect you to do that because you know that you can't. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So let me, um, yeah. Um, briefly, is part of the, the, the uh, prophecy about the, the new covenant, uh, it's very clear that God says he's going to write his law on our hearts. Uh-huh. And the whole concept of circumcision of the the heart. Is yeah. Well, we'll get there. And he's got to come in. Yeah. Yeah. So right now, right now, I'm I'm just in Genesis three. <laughs> you know, okay. we we're in a covenant of works, and there's a failure of that. Right. And in that is both dehumanizing and and the judgment condemnation. Okay. And now we need God. God could at this point, because He is self satisfied, He doesn't need us. He could at this point then just condemn us, be done with creation, and maybe start another one, maybe do something completely different in whatever he wants to do. Um, He doesn't. He decides, I love this creation, motivated by his own love, he will act now. And he brings in this promise of salvation. 
And so, really, where are we? We're in Genesis 3, 15, when he brings this promise of salvation. After the fall, man, Westminster Confession, man by his fall, having made himself incapable of life, by that covenant, the Lord was pleased to make a second, commonly called the covenant of grace, wherein he freely offereth unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ. How was Adam, if he was saved, how was he saved? Sunday school answer. By grace. Jesus. He was saved by Jesus. Jesus' work on the cross. And you have to see, yes, in seed form, he gets that promise, and that promise will be fulfilled in Christ. But what he's hoping on is Jesus Christ. He doesn't know the name. He doesn't know how that's explained. Redemptive history has to unfold that. But he has all the things built up in that one promise that God would crush the head of the serpent, that he would bring life through Eve, um, that the hope would come in his seed. That was all there, tightly woven into that promise. And then it starts to build throughout the whole Old Testament and get more intricate as you get a, a Messiah, as you, I mean, this idea of a king, as you get the nation, as you get the law, all that stuff progressively. So through Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved. And promising to give all those, uh, give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life His Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. How does somebody become a Christian in the Old Testament? By the Holy Spirit changing them so that they can now believe in the promises that are given to them. You can't become a Christian other. You can't be saved other than that. Um, Westminster Confession 7.5 says this covenant was differently administrated in the time of the law and in the time of the gospel. Under the law, it was administrated by, administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the Paschal Lamb, and other types of ordinances delivered to the people of the Jews, all for signifying Christ to come, which were for that time sufficient and efficacious through the operation of the Spirit to instruct and build up the elect in faith in the promised Messiah, by whom they all they had fulfilled remission of sins and eternal salvation, and is called the Old Testament. Okay, so if what I said prior to that reading that was a little shocking to you, or wait, the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament? Wait, people were saved by Jesus in the Old Testament? It was by faith? That paragraph says it. How were you regenerated? How were you saved in the Old Testament? The Holy Spirit working through these things that what? For signified Christ. They all pointed to Christ. So um, this system of laws was redemptive. It was important that it was uh, it was an image, but it was Jesus that was doing it. And their faith in that, not their obedience of it, was what was saving them. Point two. So that was that's that's the creation, fall, redemption understanding of all this. Point two, the Mosaic Law. Alright, we have to now grapple with this things that seem like promises for blessing and cursing. The Old Testament is part of the covenant of grace, not the covenant of works. When did this happen? It, it didn't happen in Adam in the garden, it happened after the fall. Yet there's a temporary period under Moses where Israel, though saved by grace, typologically functioned with a works principle. I should have put probably there as a nation. 
But you can even see this as some individuals as it, as it reads out. You know what I mean by typological here? Um, they were like play acting, if you can say it in really common terms. Israel, as an entire nation, was play acting. Who were they play acting? Well, they were kind of play acting Adam and the whole sin, and and um, and their their nation uh, wound up. Uh, showing the world the sinfulness of humanity and pointing to the hope of redemption. So there's two things going on there. Um, I said a lot there, maybe confusing. Let me walk through these points, come back around to it. Um, When Adam sinned, humanity could not fulfill the covenant of works. Point one. Point two, God then made a promise for the covenant of grace that he would save a people. Three, this promise first made to Adam did not annul the covenant of works, but added to it the promise of substitution. God's grace and justice would meet the substitution. So that's basically saying there was a, a bilateral, you know, the, the, there, there was some response in the in law. God added to that principle of being saved by obedience and this is what Preston said when he said we're saved by works. Added to that a promise so that our response would just be unilateral, uh, or it would just come, you, the salvation would come unilaterally from, from Christ. The law given to Moses and Israel illustrated the need for God and, and God's plan. It did the following. So, what does the Mosaic law do? One, it separates out Israel from other nations. That's the whole deal with circumcision. That's the deal with purity laws, with civil and ceremonial laws. Israel was called to be separate, distinct from all other nations. And that demonstrated to the world, by separating it out Israel, that God would redeem by a representative to stand for humanity and deal with sin. So I just told you that Israel play-acted Adam, but in a way, they also play-act Christ. Because they're play-acting this idea of a representative, that they stand for humanity, and that's how God will deal with his people. Um, I, I wrestled with this for a long time, just trying to understand. This is what I did a lot of work on in New Testament studies. And finally, it just clicked for me. There was a purpose to Israel. Not just that there's a purpose to God's people, because my Reformed tradition taught me so much that Israel was this equivalent to the church, and you know, there's all this continuity, and I was, I was warned about all the discontinuity, and I, I, for the most part, believe in that warning. But I didn't realize that Israel saw itself as having this purpose to do something about the sin of the world. Did you ever think about that? Why, did, why does Israel exist? Why did Israel exist in the first place? Well, it was to establish this, this people that would deal with the sin of the world. It was, it was they were the seed. They were, they were Abraham's offspring. Now, Israel had an inability to do this, to obey, um, illustrated the depth of human sin. And the law pointed out the Adamness of them. I mean, it's imagine if Israel just think of them as a person, and they say, "Hey, Israel, come here. You now are going to deal with the sin of, of 
of uh, the world, here is the thing Adam couldn't do. Here's the law. Now go do it and, and deal with sin. What's wrong? <laughs> Israel's got a problem because Israel has Adamness in them. Israel is a child of Adam and cannot obey the law and cannot fulfill the righteousness. But the principle is good because it's saying that one person, one king of Israel, one Messiah, will do this. So it is both foresignifying and exasperating. The consequences of this blessing and curse. So why is it good then that Israel, as this typological person, when they fail God, gets punished, and when they obey God, gets blessed? Well, what, what principle is that demonstrating? Someone said it. Yeah, works. It's showing works. So is Israel under a covenant of works? Well, kind of, yeah. That doesn't mean their salvation go to heaven result. Because Isaiah and Elijah and all the, you know, all the faithful people in Israel were saved by Jesus and this promise that would save. But they also realized that as they displayed this role of Israel, that there were consequences to their sin that God would bring a judgment on that he doesn't judge everybody the same. He doesn't judge the rest of the nations on the same principle. Here it was, you were going to get condemned or saved, um, and condemnation meant exile, and blessing meant flourishing in the land. And those two things, they play, acted, showing forth. And they didn't get many blessings. <laughs> Most of it was displaying the curse, and, and, and they, uh, they showed the exile. So that, that demonstrated the adamness of even Israel, but it all pointed to, toward a sacrifice that God would provide, both the spotless sacrifice completing the law and the just penalty for breaking it. Jesus Christ would both take exile onto himself by getting the punishment of the world, and he would perfectly perform the Adam role in the righteousness. I really hope that that wasn't abstract, because that is, to me, the key to understanding the Old Testament. Craig? This, yeah, it's also been a long time since I've wrestled with this. It took me a while, I mean. Uh, one helpful way to think about it, too, is when Israel is punished after the exile, the reason for the promises that you have that they will be brought back is not the Mosaic covenant. It's not the covenant of works. They, they failed that. It's the promise to Abraham fulfilled in Christ. It says, I, I remember my promise to Abraham, which was the unilateral. Yeah. It's not saying, I remember what I did to Moses, so I'll bring you back. No, that doesn't make Right. Right. Um, I was also going to suggest I love your bomb squad analogy. So right. Yeah, it's not mine. It's it's uh, it's um, New Testament scholar comes up with this idea that you know that Israel saw themselves as the bomb squad. I used this in a sermon a couple weeks ago. Bro. But this idea that they thought that they could deal with um, that they were given this role to deal with the bomb, and that would be sin. But of course, they fell in love with their role. And they fell in love with the bomb in, in some sense and didn't want to give it up, didn't want to bring it to that place. And so by holding on to the law, it exploded and they were destroyed. Um, they, they were always intended to pass that on to a representative so that Israel should have been this nation that pointed forward to this one person who would have come out of that under this principle of representing, representing all of humanity and deal with sin. Um, so, are you saved by works? Yeah, you're saved by you're saved by the works 
that were intended. When you read the Old Testament, um, what you're reading is Israel um, showing us the futility of humanity apart from Christ, but also pointing towards what Christ would do to fulfill in his obedience. So it has a dual nature of both showing Adam and showing Christ at the same time. Does that make sense? All right. Um, this is a great quote I have here from a guy um, in the 17th century. Samuel Bolton says, If it be neither a covenant of works nor a covenant of grace, then it must be of necessity a third kind of covenant. It was given by way of subservience to the gospel and a fuller revelation of the covenant of grace. It was temporary and had respect to Canaan and God's blessing there. If and as Israel obeyed, it had no relation to heaven, for that was promised by another covenant which God made before he entered the subservient covenant. This is the opinion which I myself desire modestly to propound, for I have not been convinced that it is injurious to holiness or disagreeable to the mind of God in Scripture. Okay, so that's just saying that we're not the only people who thought of this. Um, <laughs> this, is in the, this is in history. You know, this is in recent scholarship. Um, people have come up with this, but it was even there understood by people quite a long time ago, um, that this understanding of, of Israel. Um, moving on quickly, um, what changed with Jesus now after this Israel demonstrating its failure? Well, Jesus says he's not come to abolish the law, he's come to fulfill it. The whole point of this, um, you know, Preston talked about Romans being this uh, explanation of Israel and the law, and they're failing in it, but then it winds up to say, was the law always bad? No. Christ came to fulfill it. Um, But that fulfillment was really confusing, and this is where the bomb squad sort of comes in, because the New Testament... Um, in the New Testament, it shows the Jews and the Jewish Christians even had tran- had problems with this transition. I mean, this is uh, the Galatians, um, the problem in, Gal- in Galatia. Um, there's also a similar problem in Romans with this, um, where Christians were Christians obliged to follow the law of Moses and keep the covenant, or were they free from the law and be new people? Paul wants to argue that they were organically connected to the Old Testament people. They were new Israel but they were different. They were in a different place in redemptive history and the changes to their identity, mission, and understanding of their future hope. Um, So they really needed to think through the fact that their identity had now changed, that they weren't just... To be a Christian is not just to be Israel in the New Testament, but is actually to be... sort sort of... um, It has to go through Christ. So you have... You're in Christ, and Christ is the true Israel. So Christ has to be in the middle of that because if you just say we're the, we're the New, New Testament version of Israel, um, you miss the fact that, no, you're only that if you bring it through Christ. Or you'll read all the passages in the Old Testament directly to you and it'll be, lead to a lot of misunderstanding. If you put Christ in there, it both says it's not Marcion, which is get rid of the Old Testament, we're just in the New Testament age, uh, but it's also not theonomic that says... All the law, all God's law is good now, and we should just apply it haphazardly. So, yeah. Questions, anybody? You just, so, so how, would we, how would you describe ourselves as Israel? Could you just give us... We're, we, Paul will say we're the Israel of God. He'll say that at the end of Galatians. But, well, but I think you, 
you need to understand that as everything that was implied on Israel has been fulfilled in Christ. So we are God's people. We are in Christ. But God's people in Christ. Yeah, yeah. And how we understand that identity in that same, you know, image, we're not under the Mosaic administration anymore because Christ has fulfilled it. So we're putting on the outward, which is Christ. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Saying your Israel doesn't quite have the same connotation that it would back then. We're not a physical, national, you know, racial nation yeah. anymore. Right. For right. All that, again, and what was the purpose of them being racial and physical and all that other stuff? It wasn't just an ethnic thing, or that's the way nations did it back then. It was to separate them out, to make them distinct. Why did they do something like circumcision or, or these? Seeming ridiculous laws about keeping pure. You ever think about that? What were they doing? Well, they were making sure that they were distinct. They ate kosher. They gave up hot dogs and pork and all this because they wanted to separate themselves from other nations because they saw themselves in a role. And that all was a role that was fulfilled by Christ in his purity. Um, So some of it, it's not just abstract. It's to separate. Um, Is the law bad? You know, again, we're here, what shall we say? Is the law sin? By no means. If it had been not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Sin seizing the opportunity through the commandment deceived me, and through it killed me. So is the law holy so the law is holy, just and good. God for God has done what the law weakened by flesh could not do. That's what he's gonna say in in um, chapter eight, that last line there. What did the law do? On humanity, it said, could you really tell what was sin and what was not by just looking at all, all the nations of the world? No, not really. So let's take one nation out and let's bring them the law, and all of a sudden, like turning on the light on a, uh, on a um, projector, on a, you know, those, those overhead projectors with the screen, like you turn that light on and you just show how dirty the, the screen is on the projector. You would never have gotten the fact that it was dirty unless you turn that light on. Well, the law is that turning the light on and you say, oh, there's, there's this sin problem now because now we know what the law is. So the law's not bad. We're, the, and the atomist is bad. So then what happens when it's fulfilled? Um, justification by faith alone. Israel could not bear the law. Israel had the same problem. It was in Adam. Christ is the true and faithful Israel. He lived to fulfill the righteousness and the obedience of the law. His death paid the penalty for sin. For those in Christ, you are now in the end times. For those not in Christ, you are now in Adam. You're still in the old age. You are justified by Christ's life, death, and resurrection. This is received by faith alone. So what would happen if you if you continued on with the law, if you were Israel, if you were continuing on following the law. Well, in a sense, you'd say, Jesus never really came. He never he never did it. It's not just your moralisms, but it is not realizing what has happened. I think sometimes we and if we just if we just call it moralism, then I think we're we're prone to say a lot of bad things about Jews, but I also think we're we're prone to um, misunderstand the Old Testament and just say, you know, Moses and Elijah, all these guys were legalists and how they understood salvation. No, they all believed in the promises going forward. Um, 
they, they didn't have the hinge on when the ages would change. Once the ages changed, they realized they didn't have to play that role anymore, and they're freed. All right, I'll leave some of the rest of this um, free to read, but the Roman numeral three, the law now, there are three types of law. What does Jesus fulfill? He fulfills all three of them. And all three of them are condemned in us. So the civil, the ceremonial, and the moral. The civil is Israel's government and its civil laws as they separated out to be a nation. They had a king, they had a whole government, they, had a, they were a nation. Um, those were civil laws. Ceremonial, the temple sacrifices and the purity laws that showed um, the sacrifice that would, would come because of sin. And the moral law summarized the Ten Commandments. So think about this. Which one of these, um, I mean, how, do we, how should we think about each one of these now as Christians? I think it'd be good, I mean, as you guys are going to be thinking about leadership, these are things you should, should really sort of memorize, these, uh, these three and then the three uses of the law. Really helpful distinctions. What are the three, in the three types of law, how do we think about them now as Christians? How do we think about the civil law? Okay, but it, it, when you read those, is it irrelevant? Don't say no. <laughs> how is how is it relevant to you when you read about the law, the 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 civil law? Yeah, but I'm talking about God's law about Israel's government in the Old Testament. How is it relevant to you? Or should you just take those parts out of your Bible because you don't need them anymore? Well, in our context as American citizens, we have some sort of uh, ability to change our government. And so we might not be under those civil laws specifically, but we can understand maybe the spirit behind some of them. So nowadays... Obviously, it doesn't make sense to have gleaning laws where you leave stuff behind for people to go and, you know, but we can maybe say, well, which candidate am I going to vote for who will most accurately do these sorts of things, you know, in the spirit of how can we take care of the less fortunate or, you know, something along those lines. There can be an application but we don't have to come under those same civil laws because we're in a different context. Yeah, there is, you can say there's wisdom in some of these that, that you can derive and say, okay, there's, there's a bit of godliness here that we should know. But we also have to be careful because something like the tithe, you look in there and says, well, that looks like a good principle, and it comes from this idea that we should give to, to God. Well, all of a sudden, the New Testament is going to say, whoa, you do that, and you're giving out of obligation and saying this is now a law, and that binds your conscience. And it says, no, you give freely. Um, but how, how is the civil law fulfilled? Well, it's fulfilled in Christ. 
you're going to have to get to the point to say, as I'm reading this, Christ took on this role. He was the one that, that negotiated this and realized that sin had a penalty. So, yeah, Cody, you're right that um, there's wisdom behind it, but there's also parts that that um, that's just going to expose our sin but point to Christ's righteousness and his role. If there wasn't a king, we would never really understand Jesus and what role he played. Ceremonial law, same thing. A little easier for us to... to um, to make that leap with moral law same thing except the moral law was where else where uh, where else was the moral law other than the mosaic covenant it was also in creation so there's a bit of which now there's continuity because it didn't have to do with sin the civil and the ceremonial really have to do with redemption and the moral does in some points but there's some part of the moral law that transcends that and that um that does have value for us. And that is really huge because um, we do continue with the moral law in, in our obedience. We do think the Ten Commandments has some value for us. It's not the same as what it was under the Mosaic Covenant where there's the blessings and the curses from it. Um, but there's still value in being human there. And it doesn't even have the same impact that it did in the Covenant of Works with Adam where there's consequences to punishment. Um, but it's still, it's still present as a, as a mode to godliness. And so this is where the three uses of the law, what should we do with the moral law? Well, there's three uses. One, it's a mirror reflecting God's perfect righteousness, exasperating us to show us our need for a Savior. Two, it restrains evil. It's their saying we shouldn't commit adultery. And so just by the sheer commandment of it, we say, all right, so... Even if it doesn't change my heart and I still want to do that, the law is going to block me from it. There's no saving power in that, but, but at least it restrains evil. And thirdly, it's a moral guide. It tells us what we are being made into. Um, Gaffin writes here, the antithesis between the law and gospel ends the moment someone becomes a Christian. And what I'm saying is that the law previous to Christ was accusing you. You can't do this. You're exasperated by this. You're done, you know, you're undone by this. And that's an anti- that's you hate the law because it's just constantly pointing out your sin. But the moment Christ comes, it's no longer your enemy, but it's your friend because it's constantly leading you to the gospel and it's constantly instructing you how to live. It's it, there is no message of condemnation. Um so the three, the three uses of the law are really, really helpful. And the Reformed tradition is very strong to say the third use still continues. We still believe it has a moral guidance to us. We're not abandoning the law. Um, and you'll see in, in the... I'm going to get very gospel-centered here as we, we close when we think about sanctification. But... You'll hear many people who, I think, verge into the antinomian, which is against God's law, and say, now in the gospel we're freed from any law, and you, you start hinting that there is any type of law, and you're in dangerous territory. And I'll say, whoa, um, God, the law's not our enemy. It's not going to condemn us. There is no condemnation for it, and there's no judgment that we don't come to a second, we don't have like judgment and salvation and then judgment a judgment seat in our sanctification where God's going to sit there and evaluate again our um, 
our ability to, to maintain this. No, it's all done in Christ. But we are supposed, we, we now are given a new heart. And that's to love the law, to love God. And what better way to see that than, than in the moral law that can explain to us what he loves. And it really is that your relation to the law that will determine how you obey it. You're either doing it out of fear, I got to do this or God's not going to love me anymore. Or out of a, I have no, no, no condemnation now and I love God. And how can I love him? This is a great way. Um, this is who he is and this is what he loves. And this will help me to know the sin that I hate so bad to, to root it out. So, um, Preston talked a little bit about assurance, so I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it, but I did want to read these two quotes. Um, Martin Luther, actually, could somebody read this? Uh, Martin Luther, this idea that um, to find assurance... You need to constantly be repeating the gospel to yourself. There is a righteousness which Paul calls the righteousness of faith. God imputes it to us apart from our works. In other words, it is passive righteousness. So then, have we nothing to do to obtain this righteousness? No, nothing at all. For this righteousness comes by doing nothing, hearing nothing, knowing nothing, but rather in knowing and believing this only that Christ has gone to the right hand of the Father, not to become our judge, but to become for us our wisdom, our righteousness, our holiness, our salvation. Now God sees no sin in us, for in this heavenly righteousness sin has no place. So now we may certainly think, although I still sin, I don't despair, because Christ lives, who is both my righteousness and my eternal life. In that righteousness, I have no sin, no fear, no guilty conscience, no fear of death. I am indeed a sinner in this life of mine and in my own righteousness, but I have another life, another righteousness above this life, which is in Christ, the Son of God. Christians never completely understand this themselves, and thus do not take advantage of it when they are troubled and tempted. So we have to constantly teach it, repeat it, and work it out in practice. Anyone who does not understand this righteousness or cherish it in the heart and conscience will continually be buffeted by fears and depression. Nothing gives peace like this passive righteousness. The troubled conscience has no cure for its desperation and feeling of unworthiness unless it takes hold of the forgiveness of sins by grace, offered free of charge in Jesus Christ which is this passive or Christian righteousness. That, that's so awesome. I mean, I hope you drink deeply from that passage. And I, I highlighted that part about constantly teach it, repeat it, and work it out. You need this for yourself, but this is also going to be key for other people you counsel. You know, Craig will get to some of this with the counseling piece and the discipleship piece, but when somebody comes to you and really struggles with their assurance and says, but I, I don't know, I keep falling in the same sin... Um, and many of you I know struggle with this too this, this, the phrase I feel like I'm worse now than when I first became a Christian I, mean, I know you've said that to yourselves and I know you've heard other people say that you are the worst judge of your own standing before God because you were constantly looking internally what is this saying what is Luther going to say to you who says I feel like I'm not a Christian because I'm worse now than I was before I was a Christian. 
But what's Luther going to say? Get all for yourself. <laughs> Stop looking inward. Look outward. Look at Christ. The only basis for your assurance is Jesus. And keep doing that. Every time, every time that you look in and then see your sin and see your failing, you got to look out and remember who you are. Because it's not just um, reminding you, oh yeah, I'm going to heaven, but it will start unlocking all the other problems that, that build upon the sin. Because it, it will shape your identity now. Your assurance is based on that. And then Lovelace, um, again, another beautiful passage about the gospel, um, failing to grasp this assurance and how, why is it important that you get, that you understand assurance? Somebody get this one? Only a fraction of the present body of professing Christians are solidly appropriating the justifying work of Christ in their lives. Many have a theoretical commitment to this doctrine, but in their day-to-day existence, they rely on their sanctification or their justification, drawing their assurance of acceptance with God from their sincerity, their past experience of conversion, their recent religious performance, or the relative infrequency of their conscious willful disobedience. Much that we have interpreted as a defect of sanctification in church people is really an outgrowth of their loss of bearing with respect to justification. Christians who are no longer sure that God loves and accepts them in Jesus, apart from their present spiritual achievements, are subconsciously radically insecure persons. Mm-hmm. Their insecurity shows itself in pride, a fierce defensive assertion of their own righteousness, and defensive criticism of others. They come naturally to hate other cultural styles and other races in order to bolster their own security and discharge their suppressed anger. Yeah, I mean, you know, that this that quote could be like a whole lesson here. Think about that. If you you're counseling somebody and they're angry, and they have a lot of anger in their life, it's very tempting to say your problem is your sanctification. What you really need is you need to start uh, reading your Bible more, and you need to start praying more. Or you're you're um, you're prideful. Your problem really is your sanctification. You need to grow further in your in your Christianity. You need to get mature. No, what's Lovelace said say that your problem is? You don't know the gospel, and you're not appropriating it in your life. Go back to the gospel. Every issue, back to the gospel. Um, I'll, I'll take this moment right here to talk about the difference between imputation and in, infusion um, just briefly and how this works out in our lives because this is exactly what he's saying here. How do you know you're right from, from God? Well, the Catholics uh, are really nervous about this because they think, well, if you have your assurance, how are you going to live? How would you live if you knew you were fully assured? However you want. Who cares? You know, 
Um, but also, I mean, they're going to say, yeah, you're saved by Christ, but the church will infuse you with righteousness, and you'll get more and more godliness. And the things you can do, spiritual things you can do, will get more and more righteousness. And I think sometimes our evangelical piety gets this way too. More and more righteousness, the the deeds we do. When you stand at the judgment of Christ, in that model, who's standing there? You. You are. You will not... What's that? You said forget that. Yeah, forget that, right? (laughs) And, you, and then throughout this life, you're going to be like, oh, okay, I've got to stand there. Whoa, i got to stand. How will I ever know that I ever reach the point where I'm going to get through that gate? I will never know. It's impossible for me to know. Even if I lived the entire life of selflessness and godliness, if it were ever possible to do that, I would never know if I ever did enough. And you'd be wrong. You'd never, you, know, you, you could have assurance. You should be reassured that you're not going to make it. Um, and this idea that, no, it's not little bit of bits of Christ's righteousness that infuse us. There's a lot of scholarship and, and Christian talks about participation in Christ and being in Christ and, and godliness now, living, living out the Christian life. And then that's the basis for your judgment of Christ. No, if you put your godliness before the legal declaration of righteousness, you are doomed and you will never have assurance. It sounds cold and abstract to just talk about justification as a legal declaration, but it has to come first, and it is everything in the gospel and in justification, that God has declared to you already, because of what Christ has done, you are completely forgiven. All of your sins are paid for. You are justified. That is a legal ruling, as the gavel has already come down on your life. The gavel has already been come, come down. Your sentence of, you know, or the the uh, the ruling, the verdict is already there as vindicated. And all charges are there is no charge against you. You are righteous. Infusion, or this idea of our spirituality, is like no, the judgment is still to come, and it's still up in the air. And as much Christ as I can get into my life now to make me pass that. So do you see the the difference between the two? And why justification must remain a legal declaration? That's the analogy that Paul uses, and that's what the word means. It's it's a legal ruling to move it into uh, godliness and an evaluation of of, uh, a participation in Christ and all that other stuff really starts to drive you away from the gospel and into some dangerous territory. Um, Okay, what about sanctification now? Is sanctification your work? God has now saved you, and now it's up to you. Is it fifty percent? So God, the you know, He'll He meet you halfway. God helps those who help themselves. Is it ninety nine one? What do you know about yourself that that says it can't be that? You're a sinner. You can't. What what are you bringing to the table? Nothing good. 
The only time that you're doing good is the regenerative work that's happening now. Is the spirit at work in you? Are you cat- now that doesn't mean that that doesn't mean that your Christian life is just legal. Is that you? You know, I believe in simul justus uh, et peccator, which is the you're at the same time saved and a sinner. Um, you're justified and a sinner at the same time. Yes, but you're a regenerated sinner, which means you actually do grow. But that's not because you now are enlightened to know the law and now are motivated to serve God in the law. You're now, you have now a new heart, and that frees you. Regeneration is huge. And the antinomians, um, look, one of my best friends from seminary um, has written a ton on this, and it makes me really sad because I think he's, he's dropped a key aspect of the gospel here. Because he just wants to re-emphasize constantly the legal piece. And you just heard me talk so much about the legal piece and how it's, it's vital. But if you have no sense of you being reborn, then what kind of life are you going to live? You're going to say, yes, Christ has legally forgiven me and I'm assured of my salvation. But I know that I'm sinful in all my parts and will never do good. How are you going to approach a sin that you're struggling with? How, how will you face a sin that you struggle with if you feel like, I'm just, a, I'm just a plain sinner and nothing's happened to me except now I've got a legal imputation stamped on me, so I'm going to heaven? This is the way I am, so I try starting, starting to get Exactly. I'm really struggling with this sin. Let me work this out. Yep, I'm a sinner. Yep, I'm going to fall into it. Well, it stunts our growth. I'm, going, I'm just going to fall into it. It's, it's inevitable. No, God's changed your heart. He's transformed you, and He's working this now in your life. And so, I think in sanctification, we have to realize not only is God done this work legally, but He's also done a work in us. Listen to the Westminster Confession. What is sanctification? It's a work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God, and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. That's not just legal. That's actually doing stuff in your life. So that not only are you declared righteous, that's sealed and good, and you're assured of that, but now actually you're starting to be able to die to sin and live to righteousness. All right. You tell me that, and yes, I know I'm going to sin and keep sinning, but at least now I can fight? All right. That helps me face my sin and battle it, knowing that it's not coming with an ultimate fear of justification, but out of the freedom of the gospel, I'm already saved. Um, think about that. Uh, I, think it's, I think it's huge. Um, the God's, God's response to a Christian's behavior, this is on page 7 under B, Blessing or punishment? Does God punish a Christian when he or she breaks the law? When you sin, are you going to get punished for it? No. Why not? Because you're being disciplined. Well, why not punishment? Because it's been, you, it, God's not going to do it again. He's already punished Jesus for it. He's not going to punish you for it. Gaffin says, briefly, apart from the gospel and outside of Christ, the law is my enemy and it condemns me. Why? Because God is my enemy and condemns me. 
But with the gospel and in Christ united to him by faith, the law is no longer my enemy, but my friend. Why? Because God is no longer my enemy, but my friend. And the law is his will, the law in its moral core, as reflective of the character and concerns of eternal and and of concerns eternally inherit in his own person, and so of what pleases him is now my friend, guide for life and fellowship with God. Um, and the Westminster Confession, the liberty which Christ hath purchased for believers under the gospel consists of the freedom from guilt of sin, the condemnation, condemning wrath of God, the curse of the moral law. So even the Westminster Confession says, you, have, you are now freed from the condemning of God. He's not condemning you anymore as, as a Christian. Um, all right, so I'm going to skip over antinomism since I've talked about this a bit. I'm just going to end with motivations. Because I want to get back to that, that point about what will then motivate you now. Now that you're no longer motivated out of fear, how will you be motivated? Why not just live any old way you want to live? Um, Walter Marshall, who's written this book, The Gospel Something of Sanctification, um, the gospel mystery of sanctification. Many are apt to skip over the lesson concerning the means that they fill up this whole treatise as superfluous and useless when once they know the nature and extent of the duties of the law, they count nothing wanting but diligent performances, and they rush blindly on immediate practice, making more haste than good speed. They are quick in promising, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, Without sitting down and counting the costs, they look on holiness as the only means to as only a means to an end of eternal salvation, and not the end of itself. The end itself, requiring any great means for attaining the practice of it. What is the purpose of your godliness if it's no longer an end? I mean, if it's no longer a means to an end, it is an end in itself. Godliness is its own reward. Sin is its own punishment. Sin is its own failing. But the, you, you're godly because godliness is good. And your sin's going to twist that and tell you that sin is really good and godliness is really sacrifice and suffering. But the more and more you grow in your, your faith and your understanding of the gospel, you're going to say, no, godliness is good. Sin is bad. And uh, Heidelberg Catechism since we have been delivered from our misery by grace through Christ. I'll let you all read this as an answer. We'll do a little back and forth here. Heidelberg Catechism 86. Since we have been delivered from our misery by grace through Christ without any merit of our own, why then should we do good works? So lots of great reasons. What stands out about you to you about that? That we're not doing it alone. Yeah. Yeah. And God gets the praise. Yeah. And it's out of thankfulness, not out of fear or trying to achieve something. Yeah. Well, I like the whole lives. Yeah. At church or these certain activities. 
Um, but anyway, I, I'll, I'll do the answer here. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Uh, quick question 64, but, but doesn't this teaching make people indifferent and wicked? No, it is impossible for those grafted into Christ through true faith not to produce fruits of gratitude. That is what's happening to you. You're not, this is now not licensed to sin. It's not like we need the law now um, because we're, we're unable to, but we're being changed. Does this really work? Listen to Brian Chapel. Uh, this is the last quote of the, of the page and of my time here. Duty compelled by love may sound like an undemanding religion until we recall that there is no more powerful force to motivate the human heart than love. Fear is not more powerful. Guilt is not more powerful. There is nothing more powerful than love, writes the 17th century English minister Samuel Bolton. Things impossible to others are easy to them that love. Love knows no difficulties. Love is an affection that refuses to be put off by duties or difficulties which come between it and the person loved. What is the law? It's our guide to loving Christ. Why? Not out of fear, not out of guilt, but out of love. Um, you know, you, those of you who are parents know it is easy to motivate out of fear. I mean, it doesn't even have to be parents. You can be in your work. It's easy to motivate people out of fear. They will do it. It's easy to motivate out of guilt. You know, you can, I, as a pastor, I know, I can make you feel guilty all about a whole bunch of things, and you're going to show up and do things because you're guilty about it. Um, but shame on any of us who use those things in order to get people to follow Christ. Because all those questions are done. He loves you completely. He's forgiven you completely. There is no more guilt. It's all love. And that love we undervalue. This is why, again, going back to the gospel, not ashamed. We weaken the gospel. Gospel is powerful enough to motivate us, not because of fear, not because of guilt, but because we've now been redeemed. You're talking about a heart condition. Yeah. And believe that the gospel is good enough to transform that, rather than just saying, if you don't, you're going to feel guilty. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Worshiping him not because of fear, but worshiping out of love. Mm-hmm. Alright. Uh, yeah, I mean I feel like I, I probably missed a billion other things I could say during this time, but um, but that's that's our relationship to the law. Remember the, the three uses of the law, all still effective for us and um, really helpful to guide us there. But the moral law still exists. But it exists as a as expression of how to love him, not as a we're going to be condemned if we, we fail it.